0: Hello everyone, this is Joe Fricke, co-creator of the Movie Change-Up Podcast. I just wanted to let you know there were some technical difficulties towards the end of this recording, but I hope you'll still be able to enjoy the episode. Thank you.
1: And welcome to Movie Change Up, the show where we reboot and uh, pitch new ideas for older movies, some that we love, some we love to hate and some maybe we've all kind of forgotten about. Um, this is uh, season two. this is our second episode. If you have not seen episode 1, check it out from from last week. And uh, remember to subscribe on, uh, on our YouTube channel. Um, and like us and give us five-star reviews on every on whatever your favorite podcast app is. We're on pretty much everything. And then follow us on on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter at Movie Changeup For all of those, we've been more active on there um, recently. We're really trying to push that and connect with more people on social media. So help us out by uh, following along and doing that. Uh, my name is Johnny Dupe. I am a, a co-creator of the show, and I'm co-hosting today. Um, with my nemesis from last week, but we will be partners in crime um, today, and I'm I'm excited to team with you, Tristan. Um, how are you? And do you regret our bet of whoever lost last week had to break his foot?
2: Yeah, I mean I felt so confident going into it last week. I was like, sure, I'm never gonna break my foot, and you know, sure enough, a couple of days later, I'm hobbling home. But yeah, it's been a good week to be stuck home and diving into Disney Plus, watching a bunch of old movies on there that I haven't seen since I was a kid. Uh, so I watched Hercules last night I watched the old Fantastic Four 2005 it was not great but you know when I was in the delirious of my high fevers it was pretty good (laughs) so I've been been having a good movie week which is always nice All right, well
1: glad to hear you have something to kind of keep you busy we're all uh, hoping you start to feel better soon and can get back up on uh, both your feet Um, our next uh, so our first um, uh, competitor today last time we saw him was facing me and faced a crushing defeat in our Forgotten Movies uh, uh, in a 6-1 to loss, the only one we've ever seen on this show. So, Bobby, are you excited to get back to more well-known movies um, in Season 2 and kind of get back on track?
3: Yeah, and I'm going to definitely blame that on my loss, for sure, because I won the previous three Forgotten movies, you know, go around until I faced you. So, you know what, I'm looking to get back to some more known movies get some solid pitches out there and uh i'm pretty excited
1: all right and then there's some mystery around my other co-creator of this show um today if you followed us on on instagram or some of our social media joe you've been promoting uh the numbers 173 what what uh what does that mean because none of us know
0: all right well 173 days It's how many days it's been since i've smelled the sweet scent of victory It was August 27th, 2020, a day I remember fondly because it's the day I last felt joy. And honestly, it's been too long. The last time I won, Tom Brady had yet to put on a Buccaneers uniform and take the field. Donald Trump and Joe Biden had yet to step on the debate stage together. We were all just learning what Watt meant. Baby Yoda didn't have a name. And Alex Trebek was still around to ask us questions five nights a week. But as a wise man once said, the greatest teacher failure is. And no one has failed as much as me, which means no one has learned as much as me. So, Bobby, I hope you're ready because the student has become the teacher, and I'm about to take you to school. All right, those are
1: some some big words, Bobby. Are you uh, yeah. are you feeling nervous after that? No, I'm just ready to crush Joe's dreams even more. All right, love to see it. I'm I'm excited either way. This could go either way, and very uh, and I'm happy with both outcomes. So. That being said, uh, today we are doing uh, seven seven films. Our category is still for season two. Um, this is our second week of it and our last week of it. Our movies with uh, two T-O, two T-O-O, or two, the number two um, in the title. We really wanted to stick with that season two uh, theme. So I'll rate our movies today. And then Tristan, if you have our rules, you can follow me with those. Um, so we start off, um, I'll just go down my list I have here. Uh, the Man Who Knew Too Little from 1997, A uh, Bridge Too Far from 1977, Psycho 2 from 1983, Return to Oz from 1985, Bridge to Terabithia from 2007, The Taking of Pelham 123 from 1974, and To Be or Not To Be from 1942. So those are our films today. Tristan, what are our seven rules our nice collection
2: of movies there. There's a couple that I'm looking forward to, so I can't wait to hear some pictures on that one. But here's some of the rules here. The first is that you must use the nominees of the 87th Academy Awards. So that's for a director, that's for uh, actor, lead actress, supporting actor. You have that whole list to choose from. You must use a character made famous by Helen Bottom Carter. Your cast must be entirely Grammy winners. I'm sure there's some gold mines in there. One must be a Charlie Chaplin movie. If you follow our social media, you see that Joe has some history of Charlie Chaplin pitches, so we can see how he does there. Number five, uh, put an actor on the map so that's someone that is not very well known now that our pitchy wants to elevate to a higher status in their career. An athlete must make their acting debut, and one must be a David Lynch movie.
1: All right. Um, I'm excited for him, especially that, that last category, because that could be a difficult role to, uh, to really use. So... Um, with all that being said, uh, Joe won our little, uh, contest before the show. So he picks first. So Joe, what are we starting with today?
0: Uh, I think I'm going to go with a bridge too far to start with, but I'm going to let Bobby pitch first.
1: Okay. All right. Let me find that on my sheet. All right. So a bridge too far, uh, came out in 1977. It starred, um, uh, one of the best bonds, Sean Connery, as well as Michael kane. Um, and, uh, this is the IMDb description. Operation Market Garden, September 1944. The Allies attempt to capture several, or several strategically important bridges in the Netherlands in a hope of breaking the German lines. Um, Bobby, this is kind of a classic uh, war film. It's held in pretty high regard. Uh, what, do you, uh, what do you got for us today?
3: All right. So this was an interesting movie because the first one is a, it's a classic and it's a war epic. It's a big, sprawling story. has a lot of characters. Um, so what I kind of wanted to do is make this a more intimate movie um, if you're going to retell this in a different way um, and kind of make it worthwhile because the first one's so good I want to recontextualize it and show it just from two small kind of plato- like groups that are within this big you know battle that took place so to do that I pick someone that I think needs kind of a revival in a little way and, a- and he's done small groups very well he's done a war movie very well uh, and then is David Ayer uh, he's been on a bad streak Doing these big blockbuster kind of movies, and I want him to return to the more intimate, character-driven story, which is what I want to make this one. So, on my, we're going to tell the story of the two divisions, like before. So, we have the British side and the American side. So, in the British side, the group to, uh, that I'm going to focus on is going to be led by Christian Bale. Um, it's also going to have Tom Hiddleston, uh, Daniel Radcliffe as kind of a character, kind of actor like um, kind of like Shia LaBeouf was in Fury, and then I have to round out that group other than just a couple of smaller character actors. I have Sam uh, Claflin, uh, who is in the Hunger Games movies. He plays a lot of side roles. He's never really been the the lead, and that's kind of why I want to put him here is in another kind of side role with this group. Uh, and then in the American side, I'm gonna it's going to be led by someone that's worked with David Ayer before, uh, and that is Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, someone else in the group is going to be Thomas Brody Sangster, who is in Game of Thrones. He's also the cowboy kind of guy in Queen's Gambit. He's a scrawny-looking dude and kind of could... You know, you could get some heart out of him, kind of this small, that small guy with a lot of heart type of character. Uh, I'm going to bring in Aaron Paul, who has, is a very good character actor who tried to lead movies for a little bit and didn't quite work out in Need for Speed, um, and I think he can fit well into a group. Uh, I also have Caleb Landry-Jones from X-Men First Class and Get Out, another good character actor. And then my rule, I'm going to be putting an athlete in his first role, and that's going to be someone who showed Charisma hosting a show before, uh, and that is TJ Watt. Uh, his brother JJ Watt has been in movies before, but he's going to be kind of the big intimidating dude on the American side that is going to be kind of looked up to by uh, Thomas Brody sangsters character. And he's going to get killed off to kind of show like the big guy isn't always the best kind of thing. And maybe and he causes like a a um, a breakdown by that character and gets an inspirational speech then by Jake Gyllenhaal. So kind of some strong character moments. So TJ Watt gets a strong small role in the movie Um, and basically yeah So it's going to tell the same story from the perspective of these two groups who follow the orders as they're told without knowing the big picture exactly of what's happening so it turns into a heartbreaking story if you've seen the original um, where most of the soldiers we grew to like die by blindly following the orders from people they trusted Um, and it's just again it's more of a character driven story to show the small on the ground stuff instead of the big sprawling more epic like the first one
1: Okay. All right. I like the, the, the use of rule there. Um, it reminds me a lot of like Jim Brown being in the Dirty Dozen, something like that. So, Joe, um, uh, compete with that one because I, I think I'm starting off liking Bobby's pitch.
0: All right. So, I'm going to start off. I think my director is a better choice because I chose uh, James Mangold. He's, this, it's a war movie, it's a dad movie. James Mangold, King of the Dad movies. Uh, for my major, Julian Cook, originally played by Robert Redford i cast dylan o'brien he was in the maze runner series and then for brigadier general james gavin originally played by ryan o'neill i cast garrett headland uh so after watching the movie this weekend i came to the conclusion it's boring it's so boring there are too many characters you can't be invested in any of them i feel every man who was acting in 1977 was in this movie And like Bobby did, I want to narrow the scope, and the best war movies focus on one person or a small group of people, so that's what I did. Uh, There was a scene in the movie that intrigued me. It was a conversation between Major Cook, Robert Redford's character, and Brigadier General Gavin, Ryan O'Neill's character, that hinted that they had been working together most of the war. Now Cook is working more behind the scenes, and Gavin is still on the front lines. So I decided to make that the focus. The movie shows their friendship grow throughout the war as paratroopers, Something uh, I don't think we've really seen in a war movie before. As they win battles, Julian gets promoted and starts working behind the scenes of Operation Market Garden. He is part of high-profile meetings with Patton and Eisenhower. We get a scene with Eisenhower talking with the top British military personnel, including the King of England and his wife Elizabeth, which is where my rule comes in, because it is the version played by Helen and Bonham Carter in The King's Speech. Uh, The final scenes of the movie have our two leads separated. James learns that Operation Market Garden was rushed and not planned well, including disregarding that the Germans were stationed at the final bridge. On the final night before the mission, Julian runs into James and the two men fear it's the last time they will see each other. During the mission, James has Julian split the division in two and attack the bridge from both sides. Julian leads one division across the water in makeshift boats reciting Hail Mary all the way across. Julian wins his portion of the battle. Uh, because of the reports of germans in the area james decided to move his men to a southern bridge instead of the main bridge this delayed the capture of the bridge and cost the allies the mission julian looking at the bodies of his men who died for nothing walks away from james and doesn't talk to him again and that is my pitch for a bridge too far
1: okay all right um tristan uh before they uh kind of get into it do you have any any questions for him or something you want to clear up or address in their fight
2: I do want to address to the audience right now, for those like me who have no idea who any athletes are ever, uh, T.J. Watt is an American football outside linebacker for the Pittsburgh Steelers of the National Football League, so if you've been curious, uh, who's the football player? <laughs> so I just need a little bit of clarification of why that athlete of all the athletes, because I don't know much about sports, so is that someone that signs up for you particularly someone you want to see in movies, or is it just because his brother has some experience in acting?
3: No, was, yeah. So he um, he's hosted a show with his brother on TV. So I've seen his personality, and he looked like he does. He's not a, just like a stone-faced uh, big guy. He's got some good personality, and I think could show the, the limited amount of range that you need for this type of character. And he's also the big intimidating guy, but he's not like a hulking beast like his his brother JJ is even big bigger. Um, so I think he still fits in, uh, and he's not going to be such a standout face.
2: That,
0: You cut out. Yeah.
2: He's frozen, but I think I understood. He's got a standout yeah. face, not someone you recognize among the whole pack of athletes.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's someone knowing football. Um, He's got the personality to be in a, in a in the thing that Bobby's describing. If he was the star of his movie, I'd have a problem, but I think he fits the side character. Bobby, if you were frozen for a second, but I think you're okay now. Can you hear us?
3: Yeah, I could hear you the whole time. I could.
1: All Right. well, Bobby's freezing in and out. So, Joe... Do your thing, Bobby. Figure out your shit. Um, actually, yeah, Tristan, do you have a question for? Yeah, you? I do
2: have one question for Joe. Uh, the Helen bottom, Connor using her from the Queen of England. She has a whole lot of characters to choose from. I'm not necessarily knocking you on that, but why did you pick that character of her entire lineup of people?
0: Uh, because a lot of her characters are part of like these big franchises, whether it's like Bellatrix Lestrange or like the Red Queen from. Alice in Wonderland a lot of them there are a lot of like random characters like her character in Fight Club which is just kind of could be anybody or they're part of these big IP franchises and I felt like if I brought a character from one of those franchises into a movie I'm kind of bringing a lot of that baggage with it and I didn't really want to do that because then it's like okay so is this movie is like a bridge too far now in the world of Harry Potter if Bellatrix Lestrange shows up so I thought this was a good fit like it would make sense for the wife of the king of england to be in this movie and she's played that character before so i thought it was an easy fit
2: i like that
1: yeah i do too um i don't really have a specific question um both of you kind of sold me on making this more of an intimate film um that kind of stars the main people joe i got that more from your pitch so when you two are fighting bobby i want you to kind of address joe mentioned in his the original has too many characters it's kind of boring and then your cast seems a lot larger than joe's Um, so I want to kind of get the idea, like, who are your main people, and why is it more intimate than the original when you cast so many um, notable uh, people and roles?
3: So, um, I mean, if you really look at my... Uh Uh-oh.
0: Yeah, he may need to restart his router or something, because...
3: Yeah, it's not doing great. Am I okay for now?
0: Now you're fine, but yeah, it keeps
1: cutting
3: out. Right. So, I'm going to try it again, and then if not, then I can, I don't know, try to do something, but basically, so if you really look at my cast, like it's kind of like the cast of Fury, which is still a small, intimate movie. Um, it's just two groups, so you're cutting between groups, but um, it's not a big sprawling thing, and you're really focusing, like obviously Christian Bale is a big actor and Tom Hiddleston, those are really big names. Daniel Radcliffe is going to be a character actor, he'll get his moments to come in, and he'll have, like, a couple, some comedy and stuff, and you're and you're going to get the heart out of him, but you know, and then Sam Claflin, he's a side character, but he fits into the group. He's a small like he, he'll have his role like John Bernthal kind of deal. Same with the other group where you have Jake Gyllenhaal, obviously as a known guy, um, and then Aaron Paul, but he's not that huge. Thomas brody Sangster, like there, there are a lot of character actors, and that's and they're really good at playing these characters that'll fit well into the group. And then when you have these big heart moments, like when. TJ Watt's character dies, and then you know that kind of tears apart Thomas Brodie Sangster's. You get Jake Gyllenhaal to console him. You get those real character moments, um, type of deal. And so it's I think it is a lot more intimate. I named more people. Joe has he names two people in his cast, and obviously you can't do that in a war movie very well unless like you're it's like it's only these two and somehow don't interact with anyone. So I named more people that are with the group. That Joe's probably yeah. gonna have two, but he just didn't say who they were. They're smaller actors around them. I just kind of yeah.
1: filled out my cast. And Joe, who was your um uh, cook? Who was your lead?
0: I uh, Dylan, I mean it's kinda like both hand in hand. It's Dylan O'Brien and uh, oh, uh the, Garrett, Garrett Hedlund.
1: Okay, Dylan O'Brien. That's what I thought you said, but I didn't have it written down, yeah. so I wanted to clear that up. All right, so I mean, yeah, Joe addressed that, kinda duke it out. Um we'll give you
0: a dress uh, what?
1: Whatever, Bobby, just... Oh, okay, uh, okay, okay. I, I thought you asked me something. No. The casting, like, if you have any side characters, anything, um, some memorable moments. Um, we'll give you, like, like five minutes. Um, I'm probably 60, 40 right now, so I want to see uh, what you guys have to say.
0: All right, yeah, my thing against Bobby is, is, number one, his director. I mean, David Ayer, yeah, he directed a good war movie, but that's kind of the beginning and end of the good things he's directed. I feel like at the end of the day, we're going to look back at him and like you know 10-15 years and be like he was a one-hit wonder director with fury like he directed that one good movie well he directed end of watch as well but like those two movies are kind of it like james mangold he's had a couple of movies that weren't so great but those were earlier in his career lately his last few movies have all been really good i'd love to see him tackle a war movie he's i feel like he definitely has the ability to do a good war movie especially a movie that's like the relationship about these two soldiers and that's kind of why i didn't want to pat out my cast because i wanted to show that this was the focus of my movie of these two soldiers who were real life guys who really fought in this battle who you could go read their wikipedia page i feel like bobby's is like a fictionalized story about this event and it's like if i'm gonna go see a movie about a real battle i'd rather see a movie that tells the true story of two guys than a fictional version within a battle that i'll they just lost at the end, and I feel like it's just kind of not as interesting, especially when there are you know countless interesting true stories you could tell about this battle, and this story.
3: Yeah. So but I want to address with the director thing. So I mean, James Mangold in a war movie. Like I, I actually did. Like I thought that was would have been a good good idea. But it, a lot of his movies do turn into you know good dad movies, which eventually turn into kind of cable movies. And that and like the the thing that I want to go for is a really like kind of gritty um movie that like it'll more have a more affecting mm-hmm. impact than a lot of james mangled like, james mangled has logan which has really impactful for sure but like you know i i really liked ford versus ferrari but that's not going to be something that leaves you you know even though it has a sad like not to spoil it but it has a sad part at the end you're not going to leave that devastated because he glosses over it Um, And what I want to do is get down to kind of what he did in Fury and End of Watch really well, like I said, get back to that. Also, he did do Sabotage, which is a fun movie. Um, But but he did End of Watch, which is a really good character movie where you have an impactful, you know, death by a character and have Jake Gyllenhaal's, you know, how he deals with that. Um, And then you have Fury, which I think is one of the more, like, it's a different type of war movie. He did it in a different way. The way he did the visuals with the tanks, focusing on the smaller battles, it's not shown that often the way he did it. And I think it would just, it would turn out to be a more interesting movie than one that might just be a cable watch to me eventually. Um, and really, like, I, yeah, you say that, um, that, you know, you could you could make these people the people from the original movie. I didn't because it's, um, like, I just like wanted to get you the, the cast of people, but there are stories... That you can take soldiers and real soldiers and this type of stuff happened so you can say you know this this is a true story it's based on real events this is what happened to a majority of people in that battle even if you can't exactly google names they could use them they could not but with a lot of movies they take characters and form like five characters down into one person that's kind of what i'm doing for this so that you get the idea of what happened without bloating it um and also without changing it because I'm sure that the two people you're using are it, it's not their exact story and it's not going to be just them the whole time all the way through it like, um like you're doing so you're you're changing stuff I'm changing stuff you're just using a character that if people saw the original they'll know, um but what I would just want to do because I I Mang, James Mangold to me works really well when it's like like kind of kind of what you're doing where you're focusing on like one or two people. But I think it's more affecting in a war story when you have uh, that, that friendship and companion, companionship and stuff and show the real, like what happens in war. You're not just friends with one person. You have a brotherhood with your with your troop and with, with a group of people and you see them die, you witness friends and all that. That's what I want, wanted to get into instead of here are these two people only and you don't really get their impact as much of like, even if people around them die, the way you're saying it, they're not, you're not going to feel the impact because you're not getting to know them. Um, so I'm leaving you more impactful by getting to you to know these characters that don't make it out um, I did have like you know uh, survivors like you can have one or mm-hmm. one or two in each group survive it but that means that they saw their friends die and get killed and then they have to live with that and that's what I want to go for because this was a devastating battle that happened and a lot of people died
0: Yeah, I, I mean I think David Ayer would go for like the deeper messages and themes but I feel like the guy that gave us will smith saying fairy lives matter is going to do that and swing and miss when it comes to anything beyond trying to make a dad movie where i feel like james Mangold,
3: blockbuster movie
0: but but i mean it's still him trying to go for those messages where it's like james mangold's going to be like i'm going to go out and i'm going to make the greatest dad war movie you've ever seen and he's going to succeed because that's what he does
1: all right i think i have my my decision um but Tristan, you're kind of my consulting on this. I chose this movie. So what are, what are your thoughts? Maybe you'll help sway me.
2: I really like the David Ayer pick. You guys argued about that a lot, but I think he's due for a comeback. I think a war movie is probably his best bet for a comeback. Uh, we've seen Fury was his most like well-regarded movie that he's made by a mile, and it was a war movie. So I think, like Bobby said, all these times he's tried to get into big action blockbusters, it hasn't really worked for him. But... With such a big cast, I'm not sure if Bobby's movie is not that. Like, it almost sounds like it would be a really high budget. It would be high stakes. Like, it wouldn't be something you could just go off on his own and make it. Small and intimate. I don't know. I'm I'm split 50-50. I'm leaning a little bit towards Bobby's. But the more Joe talked about his, I got a better picture of his being being more intimate and kind of earning that Queen of England cameo. And So I'm, I'm still 50-50. I'm glad I'm not making the call. But if I was, I'd probably give it to Bobby by a little margin.
1: Um, all right, so first of all, I'll say Paul, um, our, our loyal uh, viewer, says that Bobby had the better cast. Bobby definitely went more in-depth in his cast. I don't know if that necessarily means it's a cast that um, I think is like uh, maybe realistic um, as, as much. Um, I, I was back and forth a little on this one, because I, I like both pitches. Um, I like both director choices. Obviously, Mangold has never done a war movie, um, but he has a much stronger filmography, and Air has done a very strong war movie, but has a much weaker filmography. So, what I kind of went with my deciding factor is, as I was listening to Bobby talk about um, his his characters and what like getting Air back to his strength, I started to picture David Air's version of this film, and I really liked it, but it wasn't what Bobby pitched. I would have loved Bobby if your movie was you have a British battalion and an American battalion and they're a bond and they're a family like you were talking about. And then they get ambushed by Germans and half of each of them die. And then they have to work together and they don't necessarily trust each other. The Americans don't like the British, the British don't like the Americans. And you kind of get that David Eyre character vibe going. Um, I think he's best when he's working with like a group of either two or four or five people, maybe fitting into a new environment. I love um, Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael Pena's uh, chemistry in uh, um, End of Watch. And I would have liked you to kind of focus more on maybe people being a little out of their element and having to work together. And while Mangold has never done a war movie, I would be really first in line to go see it because um, I I do think, I don't think you need to really establish multiple characters in a war movie. Um, Saving Private Ryan did that, and I don't care about any of the deaths of any of those people in that movie. I care about... The deaths of all the people in Hacksaw Ridge because it's so um, visceral. So I think if you establish the two leads like Joe did, um, and I, I expand that well, and have a director who's capable of having great action sequences, Bobby mentioned that Mangold has like more cable movies. Three Ten to You was the best war movie to come out war or a uh, western since um, Unforgiven. You know I think he and Walk the Line is the best musical biopic. He's a director that can make great great movies that. Yeah, he makes some dad films, but he also makes movies that, if I were to rank them, would be just like top five, top ten of their genre. So I I really like uh, Joe's director choice and the way he went with it. I like the Helena Bottom Carter use because that's a harder actress to fit in, so he chose someone that works. So I'm going to go with Joe on this one, although it was close. I just think Bobby could have worked around his pitch to fit David Ayer a little better than he did. So I will give this one to Joe. Gotta say, it's tough
3: to argue against James Mangold on a similar pitched movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah, that was a great choice,
3: Joe.
0: I wanted Bobby to go first because I was really hoping he didn't really like look too much into the movie and just stayed with a massive cast, and so I could just railroad him with the fact that that movie fucking sucked. I watched it Saturday morning. That movie, fuck, is it's very. Awful. I watched the
3: trailer and it looked so bloated that I was like awful. I just want to like groups of people, but it's important to show that. I should have. I have things I could have argued, but
1: whatever, that's yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. I, I Bobby, you were talking, and I was just like, "Ooh, he could have hit on some points that made that feel more of like the movie I wanted to see," um, but right. it just was a little off on that. So, what are we doing next, Bobby? Um, um, don't don't so fall I, behind.
3: Yeah, I got to go with something I do feel a little kind of strong about to get back onto it. So, I'm going to do it with the taking of Pelham One Two Three, and I'll go first.
1: All right. So, the taking of Pelham One Two Three. Um, there was a John Travolta remake, but we are basing this off of. The 1974 it uh, terrible version. It's a, cable it's movie. It's, it's a cable that's movie. that's exactly what you described it's as a movie. Movie. yeah. Um, so the Taking of lm One Two Three the original stars Robert Shaw, um, and Walter Matthau, um, and uh, it, it the IMDb description is in New York, armed men hijack a subway car and demand mm-hmm. a ransom for the passengers. Even if it's paid, how could they get away? So very simple baseline um but it's a good uh it's a good little film the original especially so i'm interested to hear your your pitch so uh hit us with
3: it all right so uh to start off my director is gonna be someone that i talked a lot about in our um uh, countdown you know top 20 movies of the decade list and that's gonna be taylor sheridan um, who's worked in a similar genre as to what i'm going to do with my movie um which would be like hell or high he also did wind river he wrote Heller Highwater, uh, Sicario, and all that. But So my Mr. Blue or Bernard Ryder is going to be played by Guy Pearce. My rule is I'm going to put an actor on the map, especially in film, as we talked about how to use this rule when we came up with it. We said, like, if they've been in, like, one thing. This actor is kind of shining right now, but in a TV show, and it's the first thing he's ever done, and really, other than, like, small side roles, and that's uh, Regé-Jean Page, who is in Bridgerton um, and he is one of the main characters, but he has never done a movie and he's always just been a bunch of side guy characters. And I'd like to put him in a role that he can be very charismatic. Um, so he's gonna be my detective Garber. Um, I, Cause I feel like he needs, he has a strong voice um, and is a charismatic person to be talking to Mr. Blue uh, the whole time. Uh, I also have a henchman that's gonna be with Guy Pearce, and That's gonna be someone that worked with Taylor Sheridan before and that's Ben Foster. Uh, he's gonna be with him, um, and then I, the the Mr. Gray and Mr. Brown characters are gonna—they can just be any character actors, fill-in kind of people. You're gonna flash to them. They don't have too much of a role. Uh, but so mine is a western take of this movie because they've done it twice in New York, uh, so I'm gonna change it to a train uh, instead of a subway and kind of go from there. Uh, so it takes place in Texas in 1937. Pelham Railways is launching a new train system set to bring passengers from city to city faster than before. They're launching three trains, three trains, Pelham one, two, and three. Um, Five men board each train taking them hostage. The leader of each train go by Mr. Blue, Mr. Gray, and Mr. Brown with Mr. Blue being the leader of all of them. They they demand to speak to the police and when Lieutenant Zachary Garber answers, they ask for $100,000 in two hours or they will kill a passenger for every minute It it is late. Same story where you have the back and forth then from between Mr. Blue and Garber and piecing together clues along the way. They eventually like kind of suspect that it could be a few different people. One of the guys they mention is Bernard Ryder, who is a local businessman, businessman who lost all his money uh, in the stock market, stock market crash eight years earlier in 1929. He figures out that with the stock market recovering, he planned to short the stock of Pelham Railways to make his money. The hijacking on the opening tr- uh, train system uh, would make their stock bottom out, and he would end up making thousands of dollars more than what they were asking for. At a point, Mr. Blue says he needs a break from talking to Garber and hands the radio over to his henchman. Garber is suspicious of this, and when he puts the plan together kind of for the audience, this is kind of when you get the reveal of that plan I just kind of talked about, um, kind of where the train was when he probably left. He, on a hunch, leaves and goes to the local stockbroker's office where the train would have been at the time. Um, this leads to a standoff between Ryder and Garber. Ryder starts to pull his gun, but Garber is faster, killing Ryder. We get kind of the classic Mexican standoff western kind of ending there between the two of them they have dialogue you get why are you doing this type of stuff so you get kind of the, the, the audience type like you need to hear the backstory of why he did this um and then we so we show that the hijackers the other hijackers being arrested kind of back um over there because their you know their uh leader kind of got taken out so but yeah so i wanted to kind of combine a little bit of the stock market stuff that was in the um in the remake Because that it is very relevant right now with the whole GameStop AMC shorting stocks is a big thing, Um, and that kind of it actually brought it into the forefront of people actually knowing what that means more. Um, So I feel like that's kind of relevant. I like a Western take on this because it's been in New York a lot. Uh, I like my cast, and uh, yeah, we'll go from there.
1: So Bobby, yours takes place in what year? 1937. 37. Yep. And neighbor.
3: I did look up when re- when they would have those radios, because I was like, I don't want to do it and be like <laughs> they can't communicate. So that would have been, yeah, they had that.
1: All right. Okay, interesting. I liked um, some aspects of that one for sure. Uh, Joe, what uh, what do you got for us?
0: All right, so to start off, um, my director is uh, Kim Ji-Woon. He directed The Good, The Bad, and The Weird, I Saw the Devil, and The Last Stand. And that's no longer Lieutenant Garber. It's, uh, I just kind of had to come up with a Korean name, and I came up with uh, Lieutenant Byung-hun. It's going to be played by Kang Ho-Sung, Song, who is in Parasite and Snowpiercer. My blue is going to be Mads Mickelson from Rogue One and Doctor Strange. My green is going to be Thomas Crutchman from A Taxi Driver, King Kong, and Age of Ultron. And my gray, this is where my rule comes in, uh, because in his, making his acting debut, I have UFC fighter Conor McGregor. And as brown... I have Omar Sy from the Untouchables in Jurassic World. So, in Seoul, South Korea, Lieutenant Byung-hun is going to work for the Seoul Transit Authority like any other day. That morning we see four European men board one of the subway cars, Incheon 123 at four different points. They use guns to take control of the subway car and call into the Transit Authority to make their demands. Since Lieutenant Byung-hun is the most fluent English speaker, he is given the call. They say they have 60 minutes to give them 10 billion won, which is about $9 million, or they will start killing hostages. Byung-hun has to negotiate with the mayor to get the money and get the police to deliver it. Uh, Seoul police learn one of the hostages is a police officer. Blue, the leader, says he wants Byung-hun to drop the money off because he is the only one he trusts. Byung-hun drops the duffel bag with the money. Green grabs the bag, but he and hot-headed Gray fight over who holds it, leading to Green killing Gray. Green rewires the subway car so there are no outside controls and it will not stop. The plainclothed officer on board grabs Gray's gun and kills Brown. Blue shoots and kills the cop but not before the cop mortally wounds Green. Blue leaves Green on board and strolls off with the duffel bag while the train is stopped before they restart it and just after restarting the subway car. The car is moving and the Seoul pol- police are tracking it. Before reaching the final stop the safeties are triggered and the train slows. The police raid the subway car to find the hostages safe. The lieutenant is praised as a hero for coordinating everything and saving the hostages. Uh, Blue later returns to his house, and the lieutenant is waiting for him. Blue addresses him as boss, and the two men count the money. The lieutenant shoots Blue with his own gun and walks back into the street with the money, and that is my pitch for the taking of Inch One, Two, Three. All right.
1: Joe must have thought i picked this movie because <laughs> I like that pitch, but uh, sad news for Joe. Um, all right, so Tristan, uh, you will be kind of be the main judge on this one because you chose this film. Um, but do you have any
2: questions for the, either of the competitors? I do like both pitches a lot. I mean, you can tell Joe thought you' you were judging on this one because it was very much a Johnny pitch, but I yeah. uh, did a little bit of research on that director uh, going into our top 20 list actually, so I, I, I'm a little more familiar than I otherwise would have been. So I'm really interested to hear you guys argue it out. I don't have a ton of questions. I think you guys gave really in-depth uh, descriptions of your movies. I like that Bobby went for the Western kind of feel. I think that's very unique for it. But Joe also kind of brought it out of the typical setting, too. So I think both people have uh, good settings in that way. So I'd just like to hear you guys argue it out at this point. I'm I'm very much 50-50 on this one. Yeah, obviously,
1: Joe, you chose one of my favorite working directors, but... Bobby, I love uh, Taylor Sheridan, but this is my question for you because it's the only thing that I need you to really address, and I want to give you a fair shot at this so I don't just knock you on it without it being brought up. Mm -hmm. I love Hell or High Water and Wind River because they feel like very modern takes on old-school genres. Why did you make a Taylor Sheridan um, movie who made the best modern-day Western that's probably ever been made? and send him back into the 30s? Why didn't you feel like making this more of a modern-day film that fit with Taylor Sheridan's other two films?
3: Um, well, because, one, he did show that he can just make a great Western, and to bring the genre back more, I feel like you do have to go into a little bit more of the classic. It's not quite, you know, 1800s gunslinger level, because this is America in the 1930s. There was still a stock market. There's still... It's, it's more modern than all the other ones, but it still gives, gives a classic, like, ta- I want to see Taylor Sheridan's take on a train hijacking and what that would look like um, and how visceral kind of that would be with, you know, uh, the tense moments of the um, passengers that may want to step up and be the hero and get killed type of things. Like, I, I, I like Taylor Sheridan to actually bring the Western genre back to what it kind of can be. Um, instead of only doing modern takes. I'd like him to, to stretch it a little bit because I'd, I don't want him to do another Western and be like, oh, and it's set in 2015 or set in 2020, you know, and it's like, oh, well, that's kind of just what he does. So I'd like him to, to expand that.
1: Okay. All right. Um, so Bobby answered that. Joe, why is your movie stronger? We'll give you guys about five minutes on this one.
0: Yeah, I feel like my movie's stronger, number one. I changed up the ending, the normal end, you know, revealing that the hostage negotiator was in charge of the whole thing all along. I feel like it can make a really interesting twist while also giving something fresh and new to the story and give it a reason to be remade. Also, the concept for my movie, too, is I thought it could be, because my director has made an American film as well as Korean films, I thought this movie could be like a solid gateway Uh, Movie for people who have never seen a foreign movie before. It's like if they're like, oh, I don't know if I want to read subtitles. It's like you could give them this movie and be like, hey, this movie, you know, it's half English, half Korean. Uh, It's a remake of an American movie, so it'll be something you could follow. And I, you know, that was part of the reason I went with what I did. Yeah, that's why I think it's a good, solid take for taking of Pelham One, Two, Three.
3: Yeah, and I mean honestly, there it's it's a little harder to argue when I'm not as familiar with the the filmmaker. But um, all I'll say is, uh, as far as getting people to watch like foreign films and that, it, it is still a very tough thing to do. Um, like I love even just movies directed by um, you know foreign filmmakers that have a little bit of mix. Like Snowpiercer is very much a that it's 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 not an American styled movie. And I love that movie, but talking to anyone outside the film community, they think it's terrible that, and like that type of stuff. And I feel like your, your movie is going to have that feel where film lovers might like the movie, but it's not going to do much as far as other, bringing other people into it. So I disagree, because you intent, look at like, the
0: good, the bad, and the weird, and that's still very much an American style, even though it's a Korean movie. And so I feel yeah, like he, I could mean, he could do a Korean. I think, I think, I, think to, I think he could It's one... hard to argue. And yeah. you're gonna get people Basically, that they. See... It is hard to. Go ahead. Yeah,
3: like it's hard to argue against the filmmaker. I haven't seen a lot of his movies, but and, and it sounds good. It's just again like doing still still a subway thing for the most part. Other than the ending, it's a very similar movie. Just with also I do want to attack. Why give Conor McGregor anything? I don't want him to get any money. He's a terrible human being. So I mean... why are you? Why are you putting him in this movie when you could have gotten any other intimidating person? Um, like that's my main criticism. If you're gonna t- do anything like to, I don't want this a movie with Conor McGregor to be the one to bring people in to watch foreign movies. Like I don't think that's that's what I want to do. Even if he's a small role, like I don't want to see his face, and I think a lot of people feel that way. So, like Tristan, if you don't know a lot about him, like he's just an awful human being who, you know, hits women and. Like, yeah, he's not a good person. So, if you know,
2: Conrad Greger, right? For the worst reasons, according to, <laughs> yeah,
3: exactly. So, that's one thing for mine. I just think it's Taylor Sheridan does very, does visceral, he does tense moments really well. If you watch Wind River, um, he does Western very well. And I'd like to see a train hijacking, um, and I'd like to see a, a old style movie that's set back in the 1930s that applies to today because of the stock market and everything going on with Robin Hood and everything going on with amc and gamestop that just happened um this shows that entire concept but in a very exciting way instead of a boring like even if you did a big short kind of story like people they're trying to do the gamestop story right now and i don't think that's going to be very good with just people on reddit this explains that concept but in a western thrilling you know movie um i also really like if you if anyone has seen bridgerton my detective garber i think he has the qualities of a like a Denzel Washington type which was in the remake and he was really good um in it even though that's a that movie overall is okay Denzel is great and that's the, the quality of acting that I think he could do as far as charisma on the phone like he doesn't have to you know be uh to overstretch to do it because he's already super charismatic I think that he can be convincing Guy Pierce, I'd like to bring him back to a villain role I think he can play, you know, he, he kind of disappeared a little bit. He's been in movies, but he's not as prominent. I think he could be a good businessman uh, that's been wronged, that's lost all his money and be desperate. Uh, and Ben Foster is just always a great actor. Uh, so that's that's really with mine. It's hard to argue again against a filmmaker, I don't know, but I just think mine sounds more interesting to me. It's a movie I would watch if it was pitched to me over yours, and
1: also fuck comic Connor McGregor.
0: The, one, the two, two things I have is one...
1: Yeah, John, make it quick, because I am... And... And defend- I, I, Joe, Tristan, I think,
2: is pretty... Bizarre. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty decided, but I, I want to hear more from Joe, so the one thing ahead, I was going to say is, one, in
0: defense of Conor McGregor is, like, 90% of athletes, pieces of shit. You, like, everyone propped up Tiger Woods, oh, piece of shit. Propped up Lance Armstrong, oh, piece of shit. Michael Jordan, kind of a piece of shit. Like, you have all of these athletes, and then it turns out they all kind of just fucking suck, and that was part of the problem with casting an athlete is, for the most part, you dig much into their Wikipedia page, and they're they have legal problems and all these other problems they all kind of just suck and so i was like he's a world famous athlete that hasn't been in a movie so that's why i went with him and then as far as uh bobby's actual movie i just like the whole it's like a train 1937 western movie just doesn't interest me dealing with the stock market like they that may interest bobby but that it just like the whole concept just doesn't really intrigue me at all i'd rather taylor sheridan keep making more modern westerns or go to a completely different genre than being like oh i'm good at modern westerns let me try to do an actual western this time it just doesn't appeal to me and i said keep it short so all
2: right yeah uh, yeah I pretty much added. so if you got anything else to say uh johnny um i am ready to go
1: yeah i'll say this um kim Ji woon is one of my favorite directors of all time, um, he did a bittersweet life, which I love as well, which Jordan didn't mention. Um, and I saw the devil obviously was, I believe, in my top five or six uh films of the of the decade when we talked about that. But my problem is, I do not like um, Conor McGregor as a person. I would mention the hits women thing, I don't know if he's ever been charged with that, but he does have multiple sexual assault claims against him. Um, and while Joe says, oh, it was a hard rule to pick because all these athletes have it. Like, I feel like that's a very lame argument because there's plenty of athletes that don't have those issues. Bobby chose one um, in his rule, used it a lot better. So I don't like mixing Conor McGregor with um, one of my favorite directors, but my favorite actor is Kang ho Song, and Mads Nicholson is um, probably in the top ten. He's outstanding in everything I've ever seen him in. Um, So I would 100% go see your movie and just try to forgive them for the cast. He does
0: die. You get to watch him die.
1: Yeah. So like, okay, he dies. All right. I'd be cool with that. Hopefully it's a brutal death, but, um, and, and honestly, Bobby's I'd be more into, um, you know, Red Dead Redemption two took place in 1899 because that's kind of when Westerns as we know them were dying. So I don't love the time, that Bobby's is setting. Um, I think Bobby's movie would have been stronger if he just went to the 1800s and went full on Western old school horseback bandits trying to rob a, a train. But I think Bobby's director does actually fit this film better. Um, whereas I love, uh, the good, the bad and the weird. If Joe went more of the Western route and then sold me on the good, the bad and the weird, I I would have liked that better, but it was more of a modern times thing. And it, it wasn't really, maybe the strength that I know this director of doing because um, I love him for his violence. Joe, Joe's movie sounds more like The Last Stand and less like the movies I really like by um, his director choice. So I would personally pick Bobby for this one because I think Sheridan, even though I think Bobby made a mistake maybe on the era he pitched this film, the year, um, I think he has a fantastic cast. Ben, ben Foster would be great in this role and Guy Pierce I think would make a great villain. So, Personally,
2: I'd be Bobby. Yeah, I'm feeling similar. I think Joe, on his initial lineup of his cast and his director, I thought, wow, that's a great lineup. That's going to be an easy win. But then, as he talked about it more, I just started to see it seem a little bit too similar to the original comparatively to Bobby's. And I know Conor McGregor for being loud and rambunctious and obnoxious and also for assaulting women. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'd see this guy for like the entertainment of his weird personality in this movie, I guess, but outside of like my lame knowledge of him I feel like from this conversation I've heard that he doesn't have that much appeal among like sports fans people who know him more well than I do so I'm leaning more towards Bobby here on this answer I I like his setting I really like the uh kind of end of the western era setting more so than I think Johnny did because I think you mentioned Red Dead Redemption too, and to me that was what made it so interesting was that it was this like not necessarily we think of the western time it was like when the west has kind of moved along and moved away from these kind of cowboys and indian narratives and i think bobby's be very interesting to take place in that setting and show this kind of great train robbery style heist but set in like the air the ass end of the wild west you know what it's kind of all kind of modernizing with the stock market and that kind of stuff and i think his director can weave in social commentary with western tropes too he did that really well in hell or high water so i'm going with bobby here i think it's a good win for him all
1: right, that yeah, was good. I'm glad we had a consensus on that, at least uh, picking wise. Um, and Bobby also kind of cashed in on an actor breaking out that is about to be cast in a bunch of big movies. That oh
2: yeah, he good pick the that.
1: Day that he's gonna be like this, uh, in the Dungeons and Dragons movie that they're working on. So yeah, he, and that was, and I had already picked him. Yeah, and <laughs> that was literally yeah, because that was probably like hours before we did the podcast or early this morning he got announced for that so you are definitely on the right track i didn't mention that in my my picking but i think you picked the right actor um because he's someone that's going to be seen a lot and we'll see if he can carry that uh fame over to to film so joe um it's all tied up you lost that round what do you got for us next
0: uh we'll do return to oz and i'll let uh bobby go first again
3: okay
1: Okay. give me one second I'm setting something on our thing which I spelled wrong so Return to Oz is one of the best horror films ever directed um it wasn't intended that way so maybe not so much but it was a movie I watched as a child and it scared the living shit out of me so Return to Oz uh, came out in 1985 at Dorothy saved from a psychiatric experiment by a mysterious girl is somehow called Back to Oz when a Vain Witch and the Gnome King uh, destroy everything that makes the magical land beautiful. Um, I'm really interested to see what you guys do with this one. It's a movie I grew up watching. It's one I saw when I was young because I loved Wizard of Oz when I was a kid and I saw this and I was uh, petrified by it. So I'm interested to see what you guys uh, do with it. So uh, give us your best shot on it.
2: Yeah, I love this one. I'm excited too.
3: Alright. So I mean like you said it was basically a horror movie Um, so you could go one of two ways and the way I went is I leaned 100% into that so this is going to be a David Lynch movie Uh, that is my rule so my uh, Dorothy is going to be played by someone who's shown she can kind of look whatever age you want her to be uh, based on uh, Queen's Gambit and that is Anya Taylor Joy so they can make her the correct kind of Dorothy age for this um uh, my witch and nurse Wilson is going to be played by Tilda Swinton uh, I think she's fantastic and can be an intimidating villain um, my talk who I changed from TikTok because it is now an app um, I have Jesse Plemons in, in that role uh, and then my pumpkin head who if there's any type of humor he would kind of throw it in there and that's going to be um, voiced by Mark Hamill who's just a very good voice actor uh, as, long as as well as Luke Skywalker my aunt, auntie M is going to be played by Patricia Clarkson. Uh, shout out to Easy A. She's great in that movie. Uh, and my uncle Henry is going to be another good character actor, and that's going to be William Fickner. And they kind of bookend the movie a little bit. So in, in, in October of 1899, around Halloween, Dorothy, is, Dorothy talks about her trip to Oz and the friends she's made with her auntie M and uncle Henry. Where she's, she's gone mad, they bring her to, to electrotherapy. Dorothy hides Toto in a bag and brings him along. Uh, there, she's left under the care of Nurse Wilson. As Dorothy is about to go through her first electrotherapy session, the building is struck by lightning, which causes the machine to malfunction, setting Dorothy three, free. She escapes with Toto, but trips over a rat and falls into a mysterious glowing creek. As she emerges, she finds herself in Oz. Toto, however, disturbingly transforms into a dog-rat creature. And you get to see kind of the body horror type thing that David Lynch would throw in there. Um, uh, she finds emerald city in ruins with most citizens turned to stone and some pieces uh some in pieces with stone limbs scattered around the city uh, menacing creatures with wheels as feet show up as dorothy and toto hide in a building where they meet Tuck, a mechanical man hiding as well he informs dorothy that the scare that the that king scarecrow was captured by the witch who is responsible for the for the destruction the the um they on their adventure there, they befriend Pumpkinhead along the way, as well as encountering many strange creatures. Dorothy does not remember being in Oz in her last time, so you get to see a lot of creature effects and work and, and kind of scares on the way there. Um, they're ambushed by... When they sneak into the castle, um, they're ambushed by the witch who wants to take Dorothy's head as a trophy. They narrowly escape after talk creates a distraction by throwing one of the hands of his clock, shattering one of the glass cases, and stabbing one of the faces. It now becomes a, They now become... It be, now becomes like a haunted house thriller with them trying to escape and the witch hunting them. They find some prisoners who have been stuck inside the wall, who explain mommy needs Scarecrow or the witch needs Scarecrow to publicly make her the new queen, so she can be the ruler of, of all of Oz. Since she cannot kill him, she is torturing him until he agrees. They find magical items the witch has, has collected, including a shield that Pumpkinhead says should reflect, might be able to reflect her magic. They're able to lure the witch into a room where the shield or where um she tries to hit dorothy with her magic but it was actually a mirror the mirror shatters revealing the shield which reflects the magic back at her beheading her and stealing her head inside a glass case they rescue scarecrow and travel back to oz finding the damage caused by the magic has been reversed dorothy returns home finding find finding she's able to return to oz whenever she wants the mirror in her bedroom but is still scared that auntie M and uncle henry will take her back to electrotherapy so she's still kind of Like un, she's unhappy at home, so she's like debating living her whole life in Oz. It's like a weird, it's like a David Lynch ending of happy but not happy type of thing. So, creature effects, crazy scares, gonna lean into the horror because the first one is maybe unintentionally horrific.
1: All right, yeah, Bobby leaned into the horror aspect, uh, the ambiguity a little bit. Uh, Joe, what do you got for us?
0: All right, well, I'm gonna tell you my direction, you're gonna realize I did not go in that direction. So. uh, my direct. I'll give you my director. I'll give you my pitch, and I'll end on my cast. My director is uh, John Favreau. So first, <laughs> I'm tossing out the entire movie of Return to Oz. I watched it recently. It's bad. It d- it didn't age well. I don't even know if it really started out that great. Uh, I did a deep dive on other stories in Oz to see if there's anything else like good I could pull from. Uh, they're all bad too. I think the 1939 movie and potentially Wicked are the only good things to come from this property, so I decided to make a direct sequel to that. Set 15 years later, Dorothy is a schoolteacher who has returned to the Kansas farm for the first time in a while after the death of Auntie M. With Uncle Henry long gone and the farmhands moved on, Dorothy is in the process of of selling it. Instead of making the Kansas scenes black and white like the original, I'm going to have them be filled with dull earth tones of brown and blue. Uh, Since it's a direct sequel, I am keeping it a musical with some old songs, but mostly new songs. When Dorothy is walking around the farm one last time looking at pictures of her eight and uncle, uh, pictures of the farmhands going past the pig barn where she fell in and walking by Toto's grave, she is singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. However, in the original, she was unknowingly singing about Oz. Now she is singing about the farm, but not the farm as it is now, but the farm she remembered growing up on. Her happy memories there, a place she knows she can never return. Not long after, a tornado comes, picking her up and taking her to Oz, similar to the first. Uh, Oz, you know, just like the original, is bright and colorful, and with the technology created for The Mandalorian, Oz no longer looks like a series of sets and matte paintings, but a fully living world. Dorothy knows she has to return to Kansas to her life of teaching and her fiance. She tries tapping her heels three times, saying there is no place like home. It doesn't work. Glinda the Good Witch appears and tells her she needs the Ruby Slippers, which are currently possessed by the Gnome King. Dorothy asks if Glinda can take her to the Gnome King, and Glinda says no, that is an adventure she can't help with. However, she doesn't have to go alone. Glinda points to the Emerald City off in the distance before floating away. Dorothy goes towards the Emerald City, where she meets its brave guard, her old friend the Lion. The lion laments and sings a song in a familiar tune about how much he hates being brave because people are always in need of protecting, with lyrics like, But I can enjoy my house, be as comfy as a mouse, if I didn't have the nerve. She then goes on to meet the tin man who is talking about how stressful it is caring for everyone with his big heart. He would have lyrics like, I could ignore the sparrows and the boy who shoots the arrows if I didn't have a heart. She finally is taken to the head of the Emerald City, the Scarecrow, by the Lion and Tin Man. The Scarecrow is complaining about how hard it is being in charge and how you're expected to know everything. He would have his lyrics changed up to, If my head was full of stuffin', people wouldn't ask for nothing if I didn't have a brain. The three agree to take Dorothy to the Evil Gnome King where we get a good new villain song. The Scarecrow devises a plan to break in. The lion fights off the guards, and once inside, the Tin Man sho- shows the Gnome King whose heart is made of solid rock, compassion, and kindness. The Gnome King shows Dorothy kindness and gives her the slippers, allowing her to return. The lion, Tin Man, and Scarecrow realize they need their bravery, brain, and heart to help Dorothy and no longer hate their gifts. Glinda shows back up, and Dorothy talks about being ha- how happy she is to be able to return home, but wishes she could return to the home she grew up with. Glinda says as long as she carries her family in her heart, they will be with her. Uh, whether she is on the farm or not. And then here's my cast. Uh, for Dorothy, is where my rule comes in of putting someone on the map. I cast Julia Garner, uh, who's currently on Ozark. Uh, she's a good actress, she can sing as well. For The Lion, I cast Hugh Jackman. For The Tin Man, I cast Seth MacFarlane. For The Scarecrow, I cast Ewan McGregor. For Glinda the Goodwitch, I cast Meryl Streep. And then the guy that's going to play The Realtor as well as The Gnome King is going to be Patrick Wilson. And then I just said I wanted to keep the time period ambiguous so there's not really going to be any cell phones or anything that would really date this movie. And that's my pitch.
1: All right, Two different directions. This is going to be an interesting fight because I don't know if we've ever had two more different pitches in the show's history. Um, I felt that these were the only two ways to maybe approach this film. Bobby stays true to the original Return to Oz, but Joe stays true to the original wizard of oz um i'm interested um i don't really have a question for you guys uh tristan do you have anything for him
2: i have one question for bobby i really like the pick of david lynch but as he went through the plot and the cast it doesn't really seem like it draws from a lot of lynchian kind of uh tropes it doesn't have a lot of his cast doesn't have a lot of his same like hyper ambiguity towards it feels like the plot's kind of straightforward compared to some of his other stuff so i just want to hear a little bit more in your fight more so than now Justification for why David Lynch was the best fit for you for this movie. Other than that, you guys have two very different pitches. It's going to be hard to choose. I'm leaning towards one just because it's more toward more what I would like personally. But I think that uh, Joe has a really good lineup here to win back during this fight. I think I'm leaning towards Bobby just going in to play my hand a little bit. But I, I definitely want to hear you guys argue it out. Yeah,
3: I'll just just so I don't forget what you said. Um, so for David Lynch, what I what so. When you're doing something like Wizard of Oz, if if you're gonna bring in David Lynch, he, you know, I, I feel like he may not have as much freedom to do his exact ambiguity and craziness, but he can br- bring something that's David Lynch like to a story that might bring a lot of people into his movies and into horror. Um, and I'd like to see his take even when he's constrained, because I feel like David Lynch constrained will actually be even better to me, because he can be very out there and very like. You know, hyper focused on a small group of audience that are gonna like his movies. Uh, and I'd like to see him apply his style with the creature effects, with body horror, with, you know, bloody type stuff, um, and then enough ambiguity to show the Lynch stamp uh, and put that on a franchise. Cause I think that's an interesting take on a franchise rather than doing what Joe did, which is kind of try to do what they've done with like any movie they try to do a sequel to uh, years later lately. Um, which is stick to the same kind of style and just say, you know, all the books that happened before didn't exist, any uh, the movie before didn't exist. This is a direct sequel to the first one, which is what Joe did, um, which I just find a little bit boring to me. So
2: Yeah, I
0: think my thing against Bobby's is I feel like as far as like Wizard of Oz, like Pit fans are going to hear like, oh, it's just like Return to Oz, sequel to Wizard of Oz. And his movie, like, by the trailer, is just going to turn off everybody. It's just going to be this weird, nonsensical thing, which is basically all of David Lynch's work, to the point that it almost isn't really going to have much of a relation to, uh, like, the Wizard of Oz story. And it's almost like, why is this a Wizard of Oz story when it really... Like, maybe you took character names, but as far as, like, characterizations and characters go, it really doesn't have anything to do with the Wizard of Oz and it's just like is your movie even truly a Wizard of Oz story at that point for me when I looked into it and I looked in the Wizard of Oz I'm like okay what from this franchise is good and basically what I got was the 1939 movie and then Wicked which is more based on the 39 movie than anything else from that franchise so I'm like I don't want to do what every other thing in this franchise has done it's like try to make it darker try to do this and then fail so I'm like I just want to do a direct sequel to The original, because that's the only thing that's worked.
3: Yeah, but the thing is with yours is you're going so much in the same tone and same kind of direction as the first one that it's going to get so many comparisons to the original, especially the performances of your new cast. To you know some of the, you know like Dorothy is such a classic character and is known so much um, from that movie, uh, and as well as the line and 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 Tin Man that you're bringing back, like it's going to just draw a lot of comparisons. It's in the same style, so there's a lot more to compare to and it's going to be just kind of a forgettable to me sequel where it's like oh yeah like it might be kind of fun it might be like mary poppins returns which they tried to do which was in my opinion really really bad like jen likes that movie because it's kind of a it it's, has songs and it's mary poppins but that's a really forgettable movie and they tried to do it in the exact same style of the first one uh, and just kind of tell that sequel a few years like years later which is what you're doing and that's what your sound's like, kind of a forgettable Disney sequel to me. Yeah. Uh, mine, with Return to Oz, you'll get as soon as the trailer set up. It's like, and this could be like a Blumhouse movie with, you know, practical effects for a lot of the creatures if you want, you know, or a small budget thing if you want to do, and that way it doesn't need to make a ton of money, but you have a franchise name to it. You know, it doesn't have to be Blumhouse. Whoever owns the rights, but they can do small budget with David Lynch, and he can do it well. Um, and... It recontextualizes it. You don't have comparisons. The first one's like, oh, there's a horror movie based in in Wizard of Oz? That sounds interesting to me. I'll see that. Um, It'll be more memorable to me. Uh, So, Jen, one of the popular things, one of the popular things in books right now, uh, my wife Jen reads a shit ton of books and one of the things that they keep cranking out right now are horror versions of fairy tales or dark versions of fairy tales. And I feel like that is going to make its way into film. Um, and if it's going to, I'd like to do it from someone who's kind of a master of kind of the body horror genre um, and capitalize on a trend that's not quite there yet in movies, but is is around right now. Um, so that's where I'm kind of going with mine. Mine just stands out as more intriguing, uh, more, um, you know, it, it, yours could be an okay movie to bring the family to. And that's yeah. about it. That's that- about the best I see your movie.
0: And my thing against yours, if you wanna do like a dark horror take again like of your version, I feel like no one's really seen Return to Oz, so if you're like, Oh, I'm gonna do a dark, you know, take on Wizard of Oz and do it as a sequel or a follow up, I feel like people are gonna wanna see, you know, a dark take on the scarecrow, a dark take on the Tin Man, a dark take on the lion, a dark take on all of these characters that they're familiar with. And your movie really only has Dorothy and the Scarecrow and then introduces all of these new characters where i feel like people like it's just not it's just like your movie just basically feels like what if david lynch directed the original return to oz but that movie wasn't even like good and then david lynch already has such a very small fan base to begin with that i just your movie won't be forgettable because i don't know if anyone's actually going to end up seeing it like
1: yeah real quick guys i want you both to make maybe one last little point that maybe has not been addressed yet but i have my decision i'm sure tristan does as well so hit on one last thing
0: if you
3: think it's necessary yeah
2: i've said yeah my
3: one one last point is just going to be against joe's and that's just going to be your casting of the gnome king the villain of the movie as patrick wilson who in any role um especially a villain role like an aquaman he's very over the top and corny in a way that i don't even think would fit wizard of oz um and he's not going to be able to be subtle which is when he is his best so i think that casting choice kind of ruins the villain side of your movie personally um so yeah you, you can defend that or bring up one
0: last point i mean i've i like patrick wilson i liked him in watchman i liked him in this and i just wanted to go for someone that i knew could sing and give me a potentially like good villain song because i felt like that was kind of one of the things that the original wizard of oz was lacking was there wasn't really like a good like song from the witch or anything like that and so that's part of the reason why i casted him
3: i really want my villain to sound like elvis Why not?
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, And he doesn't sound anything like Elvis. Um, Okay, here's my thing. Tristan, I'm glad you're the one deciding on this. You chose this film, even though I grew up with it um, as well. So I'm glad we've all seen it. This is a tough one for me because I'm pretty split. Mainly because I don't think Bobby sounds very good. Um, I, I think embracing the weirdness of Return to Oz is maybe a mistake. Because I don't know if it really fits um, David Lynch. Maybe more like an actual horror director than someone who's done movies like like Mulholland Drive that are more like... They have some scenes that are a little more horrific. Um, but they're not exactly horror films. And Joe, I feel like he went the right angle for this because if you look at the films, Wizard of Oz is one of the greatest films ever made. And... Return to Oz is a movie that just petrified children who liked The Wizard of Oz. So if you're going to base a sequel off you know, one of those, change it completely from Return to Oz. I get where Joe is going, but I don't love his cast. Bobby has a much stronger cast. I love Tilda Swinton um, as a witch. If you're playing someone who has multiple heads, and every head you put it on is a different type of character... Tilda Swinton can do that better than anyone. Tilda Swinton is my pick. If they do a David Bowie biopic, I want it to be Tilda Swinton because she's the only person in the world that can play David Bowie. Um, but uh, despite Joe's mistake of making this a John Favreau movie, which I feel like would be just very down the middle, if Joe went with his a very similar pitch but chose... Um, I wrote this down so I wouldn't completely fuck it up, but I probably will. Um, Michelle uh Pazavanasias. I don't know. The guy who did the artist who can return form to old school Hollywood would have done a really, really good sequel and the movie that Joe pitched a little better. Joe tried to modernize his a little too much. But that being said, if I'm going to see um Return to Oz, a true sequel to The Wizard of Oz, I want it to be more in the tone of Wizard of Oz than an actual remake of the tone of the original one. But I was pretty split on that. I guess I'd edge Joe in the um, if I were to choose, but Tristan has the uh, the final say on this, so I'm interested to see where Tristan goes.
2: Interesting, because I think we're going to go in literally the opposite direction in almost every single point that you made. <laughs> and I agree with you. I think that most people probably would rather see Joe's because it feels much more like a sequel to, to, to Wizard of Eyes. and I'm sure if they made this, It'd be like the number one movie on Disney Plus for a month, and John Favreau would be getting the next remake of the next Disney movie that he's gonna make. But I think John Favreau is just the weakest pick for this. I think if you picked a better director who's more interesting, that I would be leaning towards yours. But John Favreau's work in these remake areas, like with Jungle Book and Lion King, it's like you might as well just show the original movie at that point. Like maybe Jungle Book a little bit, but Lion King was like the most boring thing I've ever witnessed in a theater before. So I'm not like, down to see John Favreau come back and try and revive another long dead franchise because every time he's trying to do it so far I just haven't been very into it even in Mandalorian it's like okay but it's not like revitalizing my love of Star Wars it's just like okay entertainment and I think that's what Joe's would be and I think Bobby's good or bad would be something that I would always remember watching like a David Lynch Wizard of Oz sounds awesome it's like that whole franchise exists in this non-reality kind of Dream world, And I think that's where Lynch exists in his best work is just kind of in this in between real and not real kind of setting. So I think even if the plot is sort of straightforward and streamlined, I think Lynch's eye could really bring something to it and really make these scenes shine and just make it something really special to get back into The Wizard of Oz. And I think what makes the Oz book so interesting is that you can have a tone, a different tone in any, any kind of setting. You can go anywhere in the whole world of Oz and make that story. So I think Bobby's really takes advantage of the open endedness of this setting and also lets Lynch get creative with it. And I don't know if it'd be his best movie, but I'd go see it. So I'm going for Bobby's on this one.
1: All right. I'm glad I didn't have to make the decision because it was hard. I, I think I think the Lynch pick was maybe more interesting. Some people stood out more. Favreau um makes I think more of like what we described Mangold's movies are are more so John Favreau in terms of the dad movies. But yeah, Bobby. If if obviously you had to use the David Lynch rule, but if you made yours like a Robert Eggers movie, I believe think me, would have been.
3: That's why I had, I had, I had him because of Anya Taylor Joy, but because I had to make it one a Lynch movie and one, and that was a horror take already. I had to, I had to fit it there. So I understand. I like, I
2: like that casting of Anya too. I think, and she played like a thirteen-year-old in one scene of *Queen's Gambit*. <laughs> yeah, and I, I know. was like, oh my god, Very this is like a fully grown adult playing a thirteen-year-old child. So and, I think she has that weird timeless face.
1: And even Bobby's smallest casting, like Mark Hamill, I think was a great choice. I like, got, I think Bobby nailed the casting. I liked Joe's movie outside of his casting. Like Seth MacFarlane, you're never going to sell me on Seth MacFarlane in a film. Like even like he's – I love Logan Lucky, but he's the worst part of it. It makes no sense that he's in it. Um, but like, yeah, Bobby's cast was good. I just Yeah, overall, I just – if I'm going to see a sequel – I maybe would like a better tone, but yeah, that I'm glad I didn't have to decide on that one. So Joe, you lost that one. Uh, what is our, our next film?
0: Uh, we're going to do to be or not to be, uh, and I'm going to go first.
1: All right. To be or not to be, um, was obviously, there was a famous remake, uh, by, um, Mel Brooks, but we're going based on the 1942 version. Sorry, I would start, um, uh, Carol Lambert and, uh, Jack Benny. Um, and, uh, it, uh, the IMDb description is during the Nazi occupation of Poland, an acting, uh, troop becomes embroiled in a Polish soldier's efforts to track down a German spy. Um, so am interested to see what you guys have to say on this one.
0: All right. You wanted creative. So this is what I did. Uh, my directors are going to be Akiva Schaefer and Jermak DeCone from, uh, basically the lonely island and pop star never stop never stopping my joseph tura is going to be jack black my maria tura is going to be lady gaga her lover lieutenant sabinski is going to be played by justin timberlake one of the main villains of the movie professor seletsky is going to be played by Patton oswald the main nazi colonel earhart is going to be played by elton john his underling captain schultz is going to be played by michael bolton And some of the others in the acting troupe are going to be Harry Connick Jr. and Randy Newman. So, if you haven't figured out already, the plot of mine follows closely with the plot of the first two movies. However, the first was more of a dramedy, the second was a straight-up comedy, and I'm taking it a step up up further and making mine a musical comedy starring only Grammy winners. So, Joseph Tura's wife is cheating on him during his performance of Hamlet with Lieutenant Sabinski. The war starts and Sabinsky is called away. Sabinsky and his fellow soldiers sing to and entertain Professor Soletsky Afterward they give him the name and addresses of their families to give them uh, to give him their family's letters. Uh Sabinsky is concerned when Soletsky, who claims to be from Warsaw, has never heard of Maria Tura. Professor Soletsky returns to Warsaw and tries to recruit Maria as a spy. Sabinsky sneaks away to warn her about Soletsky Joseph Tura ...decides to kill Soletsky to protect his wife and stop the names and addresses from getting to Colonel Earhart, Captain Schultz, and the Nazis. When Earhart, Schultz, and the Nazis arrive, Tura has to impersonate Soletsky, who he looks similar to. When the Nazis don't believe that Tura is truly Soletsky, there is a moment of comedy where they ask him to sing because they know Soletsky can't sing. Tura purposefully sings poorly, and the Nazis are pleased. The Nazis eventually find the real Soletsky's body. With heat on Tura and the acting troupe, they decide to get out of Warsaw. They eventually impersonate Hitler and sneak off on his plane during a musical performance honoring him. Because it's a musical with all original comedic songs, we will have moments like a duet with Colonel Earhart and Captain Schultz singing They Will Not See Us Coming, the acting troupe leaving Warsaw singing I Saw, You Saw, We All Saw in Warsaw, Sabinsky and the Polish Soldier singing Hitler is a Shitler, and Maria talking to her lover Sabinsky about her fetishes singing European on me. And that is my pitch for To Be or Not To Be.
1: Joe, I love the song, Names. Thank you. I'm um, glad someone else has embraced that as I have in the past. Um, all right, Bobby, uh, what do you got for us to uh, combat against that?
3: Um, We use the same rule. Yeah, I figured we would. So, uh, yeah. Um, but basically, I don't want to go through the whole plot because I, we we both kept the plot very similar. But I'm going to basically say what differentiates mine from Joe's who went very, very comedic. Um, my director is going to be uh, Nanachaka Khan who did Always Be My Maybe uh, with Randall Park and Ali Wong which I think was a really funny and sweet movie uh, on Netflix that came out, I think over the summer.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: My um, Joseph Tura is gonna be played by Leslie Odom Jr. who uh, was just in one night in Miami. He He's uh, in Hamilton as Aaron Burr, uh, can really sing, can really act. Um, my Maria Tura is going to be Lady Gaga. Uh, I have as Lieutenant uh, Stanislav Sabinsky, who falls in love and with—I'll get to that in my movie—but is going to be played by Jonathan Groff, um, who is the King in Hamilton, as well as Kristoff in Frozen, uh, as well as the lead in, in Mind Hunters. So he has a vast range and can do comedy and sing. Um, I have a theater mom who kind of makes sure everyone has what they need and are all in line. Uh, and that's going to be played by Betty White, uh, who won for Spoken Word. Uh, I also have Miles Green instead of Greenberg. This is going to be played by Donald Glover. Um, my uh, Let's see. So I also cast Leia Salonga, who d- is the actress that did the, the, the singing for Jasmine in Mulan, uh, and also is just an actress in general. She's a friend of Maria. Uh, and a na- the narrator of their production, which is going to be a musical, which is where the music comes in. Uh, is going to be narrated by James Earl Jones. So he's going to be in it as the narrator of their play. So basically mine is going to, what I wanted to do is kind of tell a similar story, but in a sweet kind of funny way in the tone of always be my maybe, and also change the romance to a gay romance angle. So Leslie Odom Jr. is the one that Jonathan Groff's character, Stavinsky is in love with. So you change that around. Um, you get kind of a progressive kind of thing there. You also get uh, more of a diverse cast, which they're doing in a lot of um, in a lot of period pieces right now. They're casting it as if race doesn't matter; and it's not a bunch of white people. So I have a bunch of different you know people in that movie, and it's I didn't name the songs like Joe did. That was really good, but yeah, it's going to be you're going to get those musical scenes every time they have a that they're doing a performance or every time they're rehearsing, and it's going to break into an all out musical scene. Like singing, dancing, and funny parody Nazi songs, um, and I, you know, I, I like my cast personally better as far as acting goes to go along with it. It's not, it's not as over the top comedic as Joe's that will that I think could get a little old or be a little reminiscent of other movies that have come out. It's mine's going to be more sweet, funny, um, and have a a better kind of romance angle into it.
1: All right. Um... We'll get to our our questions, but uh, Dune Slug says, "What the fuck? That is so detailed on the songs." And Dune Slug, you should check out our previous episodes because um, I've done that before in the past, and I think I might be the only one who's ever done that. I did that with Small Soldiers as a musical, as well as the My Fantastic uh, Prince version of Hot Love. So, take I the suggest-
0: organs from the Gorgons.
1: Take the organs. Hot
2: Love is a classic,
1: and Hot Love is great. So. I suggest going back watching previous episodes if you enjoyed the song names, which Joe, I was thoroughly uh, uh, enthralled by. So, Tristan, do you have a, a question for
2: these two? Not too many questions, really. I think you guys both went for the comedic angle. I think Joe went slightly more comedic and more ridiculous. I can definitely get a better picture of Joe's. so I just want to get a little more as we're going in the arguments, more of a picture from Bobby of what uh, the movie would be like, but I just want to hear you guys argue it out. You guys got similar pitches, but some differences to focus on. So I've got no questions on my end. Yeah,
1: I think my my main question is, Joe. I get what your tone is, Bobby. I'm a little more confused by the tone. I think yours is more of like a straight up musical um, than a comedy, but hmm. what yours have comedic elements. Because um, I get Joe's based on his pitch. I don't yeah. understand. What yours is.
3: Have you see? Did you see Always Be My Maybe?
1: I did. I like. Right. No, I didn't think
3: your kid so, fit with that. So it's if you if you know because I don't know if you know like Leslie Odom Jr. as much and Jonathan Groff as far as their what they've done done in Hamilton they fit what I'm going for really well, um, and that's where the main focus like they're kind of the two that like other than Lady Gaga obviously like you know she's a, a main player but that romance angle as far as that is is what I'm going for and also. Uh, What I liked about Always Be My Maybe is that it's not always comedic, but when it's comedic, it's hilarious. Like, it really nails moments of really good comedy, Um, and the rest is a sweet, fun movie. And then so I I think the comedy is going to come from the musicals, and the musical stuff happens only when when they're rehearsing and when they're actually on their live stage show. Um, So it's mixed in throughout the movie because you're going to have them rehearse every so often kind of to hit a beat. You know, so that it's not just in the beginning and just the end or something like that. Um, but the like, it's basically instead of straight up, you know, Saturday Night Live style humor uh, or parody humor, um, it's more kind of in a way, kind of throwback to where, um, kind of a romantic comedy vibe is where I'd say it would go for with um, parodying theater um, and kind of showing that the comedy that can come from theater troops and all that. So, yeah.
0: yeah he keeps talking about comedy i have a duet with michael bolton and elton john singing they will not see us coming i have lady gaga singing a love ballad to justin timberlake called european on me i have justin timberlake and a group of Polish soldiers singing uh whatever his song title is oh hitler is a shitler you know and then i i do have comedic moments outside of just like song titles like i have a moment because Patton Oswalt plays like the main villain in my movie cuz I think he won a Grammy for like comedy album or spoken word. I don't remember I didn't write it down. But he, Patton Oswalt can't sing. So like I said, there's a moment where they know his the Nazis know his character can't sing and Jack Black is un, like in disguise as him so they ask him to sing and Jack Black purposefully sings poorly and they're like, "Oh yeah, you must be the guy because you can't sing." And so I like I have moments that are comedic outside of just like dumb song titles, and I feel like if you want to argue comedy all day, I think I beat you on that front. And as far mm-hmm. as like acting goes, sure, like maybe, you know, Jack Black has shown he could be a good comedic actor. Lady Gaga was has you know an Emmy, and she was, you know, really good in The Star's Born. Justin Timberlake has shown he's a good actor. Patton Oswalt is a good comedic actor. Like maybe Elton John isn't the greatest actor of our generation, but when he's cameoed in movies like Kingsman 2, like, Kingsman 2 wasn't great, but when I was watching that movie, I wasn't like, oh, Elton John is bad in this. And I also have Kenny yeah. Connick Jr., who was in Independence Day, and he was solid in that movie. Like, Sure, my actors aren't out here winning Oscars, for the most part, but they're also not, like, bad either.
3: Yeah, I just think we went for two very different styles, like, and I don't, uh because it's already been a kind of a straight-up comedy in the past doing a straight-up comedy again like I'd, i'd rather throw in more of a romance angle a little bit more progressive with the casting and as well as the um the story with the the romance angle there um i think that jonathan groff can bring in if you have seen hamilton as the king he steals the show and he's hilarious in it and so he's gonna bring a ton of comedy like he'll have like the keanu reeves scene type stuff it'll always be my maybe but um what i mean about the comedy like your sounds like it's throughout the entire movie it's a straight up comedy and which is is fine and that's that's a way to go with it i just met, am throwing it in there to where it's uh instead of jokes that either hit or flop and it goes throughout the movie which a lot of comedies do and like some really hit some really miss i'm going for when they hit they hit hard because that's what that movie did more like any the like it uh and i think i cast actors that can do that um and kind of just more of a sweet tone one that would get a lot of play for couples, I think, would really uh, enjoy this movie together, because um, you'd have kind of a romance angle, you'd have the comedy uh, to go along with it, um, and yeah, it's just, it's, this is more of a style, what style do you want to see for this movie, personally? Um,
1: all right, so. here's my question, I, I have a question for, for each of you. Um, Joe, my first question for you is, all I've seen on Twitter the last few days is people shitting on Justin Timberlake because of the Britney Spears documentary? I have not seen it. Tristan has, but it seems like he might be a piece of shit. Um, defend your choice of Justin Timberlake in your movie.
0: Uh, I've been like sick for like four days. I haven't been on Twitter, but I feel so I have like no idea what the controversy is. The Shia um... LaBeouf argument.
1: I'm gonna have, I have no idea what the um, so it's
0: was. like. I can't defend. Like I don't know what happened, so I don't really know. I, so, so,
1: you put some light onto the controversy that I've seen
2: around. Uh, shed some light onto it. Uh, in the Britney Spears documentary that came on, the New York Times put it on uh, Hulu a couple about a week ago or so. It's basically a look into her early career and how it kind of fell apart. And they put at least some of the blame on Justin Timberlake for when they were together romantically and then broke up and he kind of did like a media campaign shaming her and it really increased the attention from paparazzi and increased the attention from a lot of like Perez Hilton types who were very invested in destroying this woman rather than attacking the man and it was one of the big turning points of her career in the downfall
1: all right and Bobby my question for you Mm -hmm. is Why would a bunch of Nazis be watching a play put on by black people instead of just murdering all the black people?
3: So, but that's the whole point of what I was saying. Um, There's a lot of movies right now that are, and even Bridgerton, the show, is doing it. They're completely ignoring any of that. Like, like it's like it was diverse then because you're then able to cast different people in the roles. Um, Isn't that a problem when you're no with
1: Nazis? I don't diversity an issue with Nazis
3: not when you're doing a tone like this i don't think um i think it works well to do it because you're like you can i don't know have you seen a lot of the movies and stuff that are doing that lately or shows it's kind of been a big trend and it's even in cases like that and in war and in things and it's just you allow yourself to cast someone like leslie odom jr who's amazing and i hope he gets more roles um, and bring in someone like James Earl Jones to do more voiceover type stuff, like voicing as a narrator, which would be great, um, and Donald Glover, um, as well as Leah Salonga, who is an Asian actress, and I think that would be good. It's just I, it, that's more of a choice for... Um, I think that's better for Hollywood at this point, point. Um, and I don't really... With a comedy where you're going in this direction where it's not serious, you're, it's not a drama... So you're not taking the Nazis as these dangerous things. It's more of a f- more like, okay, they're dangerous, but you're not taking you're not taking them you're not taking them as a threat to kill the to kill the um the main characters because because you know the type of movie you're in. That's what I mean. A threat within the movie to kill your actors to kill your characters.
1: I get what you're saying. So yes, no. I
0: know. Can I, <laughs> I know. can I make a quick defense of Justin Timberlake? Oh, also, Betty White is fantastic.
1: I mean, you can make one, but I have my decision. You don't. All know. Right.
0: My my thing yeah, that I was I gonna make that is that if you were gonna say if it was something right. he did recently, like within last year, last month, or something, then it'd be like, okay, that's a problem. But you're talking something that happened in 20 years ago. He's, you know, 40 now. He was in, like, his late teens, early 20s then. He's, like, married. He's a different person. He's probably changed. I don't know if he's apologized or if he's been, like, if he said, like, oh, yeah, what I did then was fine. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say he's probably apologized for what he's did or
2: condemned what he's did. So
0: that's all I have to say.
1: Yeah, my main question yeah. was I didn't know what the controversy was. So, Tristan, yeah. I'm the main, I'm the one deciding on this one. What do you think
2: here? Uh, I want to defend Bobby's casting a little bit because Bridgerton does that where they cast people regardless of the, the race. They just black. Put- yeah. Yeah, the queen is black, the main love of interest is a black guy, and they don't really address it and I think it works fine in that kind of a tone. I do think when you include Nazis, it all makes it a little weird that you're not addressing like the race of the cast, but I, I don't think I don't think it's that big of a deal. I'm not sure how Johnny feels about it. I like the diverse casting. So I do like that for Bobby's. Just in Timberlake, regardless, I think that Joey sounds like a really fun movie. It sounds like something that would be fun to watch once. But much like Popstar, I feel like I would get, like, half an hour into it and be like, okay, I feel like I got the joke already. Like, you don't need to make, like, a two hours of the same joke. And I'm not sure how much it would work for me personally, so I'm not sure I would be super invested in Joe's movie. Uh, I'm leaning towards Bobby's here, but I'm glad I'm not making the final call because I think Johnny's in a different direction than I am. But I'm leaning a little bit towards Bobby on this one. My name is
1: Hamilton, and I'm here to say I'm going to rap in a historical way. Rap. He doesn't rap in these things. Just so you know, I, here's my hot topic Tuesday because we're gonna maybe do this on TikTok. Hamilton sucks, <laughs> and I don't want to deal with Hamilton in my movies. But I didn't let that really affect mine on Bobby's. My my main thing with it is I understand like casting things like okay, if you're casting something for you know the 1800s England and you cast um, black people in roles that were white people, but it's not something that really deals with race. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a way that Hollywood should go. If a character or a person is not defined by their race, you can cast anyone you want. But when you're dealing with Nazis, I think that changes things. Um, it, that, like, Some of the most racist people in the world are the people that say, oh, I don't see color. No, it's important to see color. It's important to understand the struggle that minorities um, have gone through and, and kind of... Um, fight for that. So I, I think sometimes if you go the direction of just pretending that's not a thing is an issue. And when you're dealing with Nazis, that's a problem because Nazis were obviously against black people. that Bobby's movie basically would take away a lot of the impact like Jesse Owens had in the 1936 Olympics. a black man winning the gold in front of Hitler was a huge deal and an important um, time in history and something like that is lessened by forgetting race or just casting people, um, you know, and just being like, yeah, well, the Nazis didn't care that they were black. No, I think that's a problem. So I'm leaning towards Joe um, in in more of a way. I think Joe's movie at least deals with more of the the comedic aspects. I think uh, you can kind of um, make that, uh, you know, a little more humor situations but also deal with some of the aspects of that and have people in situations that they are trying to oh I have to pretend to be a bad singer or these people might kill me um I think Joe's has maybe a little higher stakes while also being funnier so I go see his it's more of like the style of the Mel Brooks version which is the more watchable version of this film um and, and that being said I think um you know we have some live comments so I'm gonna go with uh kind of what they're saying so dune slug uh who already commented once says uh those are all songs i can see coming from lonely island which i agree i think joe's uh music fits uh with his uh directors i don't see always be my baby isn't a very uh very down the middle average uh rom-com with a very funny camera reeve scene um that's the only standout moment in that movie. Um, I don't see him directing a good musical, and then Robert uh, Perino says, "Joe, I'm getting Allied." Oh, by the way, that's Robert. Yes, yeah, that's yeah. Robert. Okay, ah, I was yeah. reading that name. I was like, oh shit, what's up Robert? Yeah. Hey, Robert. Um, he says, "Joe, I'm getting Allied meets the producers vibe," and and I agree. I, I like Joe's. Reminds me more of a producer style movie with some more aspects thrown in. That's more of the movie that I'm more interested in. Um, rather than Bobby's, just feels like kind of a mesh of things that don't go well together. So I'm going to go Joe on this one. And I don't know our score, but I think that ties it up. Yeah, now we're two, tied two. up
2: 2-2. Two, two. Yeah.
1: All right, so we'll uh, we'll kind of get through it our ones maybe a little quicker here because we're at 8.35. So um, Bobby, you lost that one. What's our next movie? Hmm.
3: This is going to be intriguing. So let's see. Um, I'm going to go with one of my shorter pitches, but one of the, I think, stronger takes on a movie I have, and that's going to be Bridge to Terabithia. And I'll go first.
0: All right.
1: Bridge to Terabithia came out in uh, 2007. Um, it's a very strange movie. If you went in thinking it's a, a children's movie and there's a child death almost immediately, spoiler. Um, but right? it starts yeah, it stars, uh, it's not a spoiler, but it happens so quickly. It stars uh, Josh Hutcherson and Anna-Sophia Robb, Robert Patrick, Zoe Deschanel. It's got a lot of famous people on it if you look back at yes. the um, But uh, a preteen's life turns upside down when he befriends a new girl in school, and they imagine a whole new fantasy world to escape reality. So that is the uh, the uh, little IMDb description of the film, and interested to hear what you guys have to say about it. Yeah, so
3: one of the problems with this movie when it came out is that it was marketed just as a straight-up kids movie, and then it does deal with, like, a child death in the movie and all that, and it's pretty traumatizing, for and parents complained. Uh, so I want to, instead of glossing over the fact that they were trying to make a very powerful statement, I want to put that in a context that makes sense. Uh, so I'm making this a Studio Ghibli movie, Studio Ghibli movie, who deal with death and trauma a lot and deal with children um, handling that. I think it can handle the fantasy very well. Uh, because Miyazaki is retired, I'm not just going to say I'm bringing him out of retirement to do this, so I'm going to do use Hiramasa Yana Iyana Bayayashi, who did When Marnie Was There, which was a very good Studio Ghibli movie. Um, and then I'll get to my rule as I get to my cast. So my Leslie is going to be voiced, and this is the American voiced cast. Um, you know, they do it like Johnny did before. Uh, is going to be Millie Bobby Brown. Uh, my Jesse is going to be Jacob Tremblay. Um, And then uh, my rule is that I'm going to use a character made famous by Helena Bonham Carter, um, and that's because when they create their magical, the Terabithia world, the character in that world that they use as kind of a surrogate to do their magic and uh, do their wishes is going to be her um, fairy godmother from Cinderella. So she's going to be their fairy godmother who is in charge of this world who helps them create it. Uh, so it's somewhere, someone that they can actually interact with in the world, um, and she's a very different take on the fairy godmother, so it's not going to be like, why is this character from Cinderella showing up? Um, because she is, uh, if you watch the movie, she's a, it's a very different take on it that I like a lot. So, again, I am telling the story of Bridget Abithia. I'm moving the character death instead of, like, the very beginning of the movie. They're going to develop a good friendship first, uh, a little bit more than the original. Um at least I didn't think it happened right away, but Johnny said it happened right away. But honestly, it makes more sense for my movie for it to happen uh, towards like in the second act, and then it, the set, then from that end on is Leslie dealing with it, um, and yeah. So I just I want to still tell the story. It's important for kids to know about death, uh, and that you know it, it's gonna it's gonna also show it's gonna overemphasize you know like a lot of Studio Ghibli stuff does the like bullying and things that happen in school to make them feel lonely like they have to go create this fantasy world but the moral of the story kind of is that you can't just escape to it which is a lot of morals that they show and you 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 have to deal with reality um so i think that one the visuals will be fantastic in terabithia because that's what studio ghibli does amazingly and they do tell these stories well so uh, that's what i'm going for
1: very interesting uh not what i expected from this um but I'm into it.
0: So Joe, what do you got for us? All right. So this was like the hardest movie I've ever had to write a pitch for because basically the 2007 movie was considered a good adaptation of the book and it's, you know, widely critically praised and it's recent. So it was hard. So this is what I did. My I used the rule of casting the nominees and director from the 87th Academy Awards. So my director is Wes Anderson, uh, my Jess, uh, and then my Jess Aarons is uh, Noah Jupe, uh, my Leslie Burke is Millie Davis from Wonder and Good Boys, and then his uh, little sister Maybelle Aarons is Brooklyn Prince from The Turning and The Florida Project, and then you have his dad Jack Aarons is played by Edward Norton who was nominated for Birdman. You have Mary Aaron's, uh, his mom, going to be played by Felicity Jones, who was nominated for The Theory of Everything. You have their teacher, Miss Edmonds, played by Emma Stone, who was nominated for Birdman. And then you have uh, Leslie's dad, Bill, uh, played by Steve Carell, who was nominated for Foxcatcher. And then I said the 2007 movie was loved by critics and fans, and it's considered a very faithful adaptation of the book, and was even written by the author's son. So I really didn't want to change this story too much. I more wanted to change the look and tone. Uh, All of the creatures are going to be done with practical effects, uh, puppets, stop-motion animation, and miniatures, which I feel fits Wes Anderson's style. When they're in the real world, the tone is going to be similar to Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, When they go to Terabithia, it's going to look like the Life Life Aquatic. Uh, One story change I would make is I have the creatures of Terabithia be actual more characters with thoughts and feelings that reflect the real world more. Uh, jess's mean dad is represented by a monster his annoying sisters are annoying little fairies that follow him around the school bullies are large trolls and when they learn to defeat the bad creatures in terabithia they use those same skills to beat the people in the real world when he sees the monster isn't mean but isn't just trying uh, when he sees the monster isn't mean but it's just trying to protect jess that is why he won't let him go to certain areas he realizes his father is doing the same thing when jess and leslie play with the fairies jess does the same with his sisters and he realizes they annoy him because they look up to him and want to spend time with him when leslie and jess stand up to the trolls the trolls leave them alone so they do the same to the bullies uh the movie has the same twist ending as the book and movie and that aspect plays out very much the same and that is my pitch all right
1: tristan got any
2: questions for these two uh both good pitches i think i i like bobby's choice of the studio ghibli uh Direction for this, I'm definitely I'm leaning towards his a little bit going into it, just because of the studio Ghibli attachment more than anything. I think their I can really bring something out of this. We're running good on time here, so I'm just ready to get get to them arguing. Really, I feel like they're gonna have some good arguments here.
1: Yeah, I kind of just want um, Bobby to address uh, with it because we'll give you a few minutes on this argument. Um, Address to me why? I get that your movie. Um, you're casting it like it's the American voices, like they do in Studio Ghibli. But why would the original, like Japanese version, have the Helena Bottom Carter character in that? I get that's your rule you have to use, but it doesn't seem to fit at all. So just defend that for me, and that's probably the only question I have for you to pitch.
3: Yeah, I mean, if you want to contextualize it in a way that that would make make sense for her to be in it, you can. Um, that is a movie that kids watch that they they would picture her um, granting their wishes. So that movie, it, that Cinderella exists in this world and they have watched it, um, and that is how that character manifests when they go to their imaginary world, and it's kind of the magic they that they're using. So it would make sense to bring kind of a big character in, like the fairy godmother, because um, that would be how they would manifest in their heads, like, how is this magic happening how are we creating this world and kind of and then also someone that can guide them as a parent figure in there that they're kind of defaulting to um to get advice and interact with so i think that to me it makes sense um personally so i I don't see too too much of an issue in either the japanese or the the american versions but uh um see my problem with
0: like having the fairy godmother characters i feel like one kind of undercuts the fact that it's their imagination. Like, yeah, even if they create her in their head, and then but she then goes to cr- create everything else like via them, I feel like it kind of undercuts the fact that it's their imagination. And two, I feel like uh, the fairy godmother being from another property, again, it like takes away from their imagination. And why would they need a guide in that world when all of that world was created from their imagination? I feel like just having the fairy godmother in this story kind of takes out a lot of it and i also don't know if like because studio ghibli does a lot of like isn't all of their work is mostly like inspired by japanese stories and inspired by other japanese things and i feel like uh the fairy godmother is very much like a western thing and i don't know if it really fits with like what studio ghibli does or their works to have a like fully like western character in their movie
3: yeah, and, and I don't want to go back and forth too, too much on it, but just my defense of that is, again, it's it's still them creating the world, and but they need, like, the whole reason and a lot of times in Studio Ghibli movies that people are escaping into a fantasy world is getting something they're not getting in the real world, um, and one of those things in these characters in this movie are parental figures that are paying attention to them and are, you know, doing what they... Uh, think would be right for them. So if if they if, if that's kind of the figure in here and they are describing exactly what they want, so the only difference is when they say exactly what they want, she's the one waving the on, wand, but she's able to give advice. So that, that's all I want to get into with that because I also, with your rule choice, and as far as the way you went with your movie, like you said, it was a very, uh, you know, strong adaptation of the book that fans liked, but it also... Caused a lot of controversy because it wasn't, it was a very hard, difficult movie to market. And I think you're running into the same issue. You're basically telling the same story again, but you're just kind of changing the, like a couple things that happen as far as like the creatures are a little different and that affects the real world. I don't know if that's enough to remake a movie that is so recent. Uh, if you're going to remake a movie that's only, you know, 13, 14 years old, that was done well and not a bad, because if you take a bad movie, and remake yeah. it like yeah like that's a good way to go but you're taking these oscar caliber actors and putting them into a movie that was already done well um and you're not really changing too much you're just at make putting better actors in it i don't know if that but i feel like i could really just turn
0: around and say the same it. thing for you of like why would studio ghibli remake a movie that's 13 years old that was already done well
3: because it the the context of the movie makes a lot more sense within studio ghibli it, it was not like i would bet that it didn't make a lot of money i didn't really look it up but it um i can you know confirm it but it's a movie that for americans is very difficult to swallow uh but the studio ghibli movies are actually popular among kids and parents don't necessarily always you know know what it what it is they're watching and it might get to more kids in general to get that story yours the way it's cast the way that and even wes anderson um you're directing it more towards adults it seems like even though this kid this is a very, a movie that kids should watch to be able to kind of get the um, the theme and get the you know dealing with the real with death and real world stuff instead
0: of like adults. Well, I mean, two I, of his like, most recent movies are more kids movies with Fantastic Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs are more yeah kids his animated movies, but his live movies. action
3: movies usually are pretty wacky adult ish comedies. Like there's there's kid stuff in it. I just don't. My thing is he could make a fine movie, but. I don't know if it would, if there's a really reason for it to happen, even Wes Anderson. I mean, that's my whole problem
0: with this movie in general: is there's zero reason whatsoever to reboot it, and so, and I just, I feel like the same argument you can make for Wes Anderson: of why would I say like Studio Ghibli is not going to go and remake this movie either?
3: Yeah, he he wouldn't make it, but yeah, but it makes more sense to me. So yeah, here, Tristan, do you need to hear anything else from that
2: uh, no, I I just want to hear one little bit from Joe. Joe didn't get to talk too much about his so I just want to get a quick answer of how does Wes Anderson's style and tone fit this movie for you? Yeah,
0: I feel like with his style and tone like what I said earlier with Moonrise Kingdom I feel like Moonrise Kingdom, especially when the two kids were, you know, alone had that slightly darker. It wasn't quite as wacky and over the top as his other movies and I feel like that would fit more with Bridge to and I feel like partially too, practical effects and you know, puppets and other things hold up better. Because I, I honestly haven't seen *Bridge to Terabithia*. I watched parts of it, is what I could find on YouTube, and I watched the trailer. And the effects for it already kind of looked bad, and so I feel like that's more what Wes Anderson would do. And I feel like that would fit more, and it would look better, and it would age better than the version we have now. And I, and I think it would be an interesting take on that story. All right, so
1: I'm the one who chose this one. Uh, so sorry about that, guys. Nice. But um. Mm-hmm. Justin, what uh what are your thoughts uh i might need
2: some swing here i like joe's west anderson pick i think we've debated with henderson a lot on the show and i think sometimes he fits sometimes he really doesn't but i think this is one where i think he can kind of fit i think his kind of family whimsical kind of tone could fit pretty well for this story in this audience that i think joe is going for because bobby called west anderson an adult director and i think sometimes he is but i think what makes a lot of his movies appealing is that they can have, have some mass appeal. They're not very adult in their themes. are kind of have family appeal, at least for some of his recent ones. So I like the Wes Anderson pick. I also like the Ghibli pick, though. I think Ghibli's themes can get into the the darkness and the depth of Bridgetary Bithia in a way that I'm not totally sure Wes Anderson would be able to pull off, maybe. I think uh, Ghibli could give an excuse to remake this semi-recent movie in their totally unique style they could make it something of their own so i think they are the one option that kind of negates that oh it's a recent good movie or they remake it and i think ghibli would maybe remake it because they have such a unique eye that they can make it their own thing so i'm definitely still split it's a hard call to make uh joe's I'm, i think i'm leaning a little bit towards joe because i like wes henderson as the pick Uh, but it's hard for me. I'm glad I I didn't pick this one because I'm not going to have to make the final call, but Joe is my slight victor at this point.
1: Yeah, it's tough because I do think while maybe on surface level neither of your picks really fit um, a remake of this movie, I think you both argued well why your style fits. Um, You both did a good job defending that because originally when I heard Wes Anderson, I was like, well, that doesn't fit this movie and when I heard Studio uh, Ghibli I was like I can maybe see it but then I don't so my thing with it is this I would have liked um, I would have liked Bobby's pitch a little more if it dealt more with more of an ambiguous like did they really go into this world or not like a spirited way I think actually entering like a fantasy world after dealing with loss and kind of learning to live with that and be strong characters fits more for the studio than anything to do with the fairy godmother and imagination aspect um, that yours kind of goes for. And while I didn't think Wes Anderson was maybe a great fit for this originally, I liked Joe's description of the style, like look wise is like a Steve Zissou and he has a lot of interesting little creatures practically underwater um, I think that can fit uh, a fantasy world and the Royal bombs does a great job having characters that have dealt with loss um, like Ben Stiller's character having his wife killed in that and Luke Wilson's character trying to commit suicide while those are maybe not the most child friendly aspects I think Birds of Terabithia is a better sold movie to teenagers or preteens that can kind of be past that stage of watching Rufasa die in Lion King but still need a movie that kind of shows loss and how to deal with that so I like Joe's Wes Anderson he convinced me well on why that fit so I also give the slight edge to Joe even though this one was very close um, but I'm going to go with, with Joe on this one so that brings Joe to 3-2 Bob you need a win here to uh, to tie it up Alright, I'm
3: putting myself into predicting, because like I need this win, but do I want to end with a shorter pitch or not? But, you know what, I need this one. Let's go with kind of a longer pitch for me. Um, let's go with Psycho 2, uh, and I'll go first.
1: Alright, Psycho 2, directed by directed by Richard Franklin, starred uh, Anthony Perkins returning for the sequel, as well as uh, Vera Miles and Nick Tilly. Um, and uh, I'm be describes it. Yeah, this was uh, if you couldn't tell whose pick this was, I'd have given it away. So, after 22 years of psychiatric care, Norman Bates attempts to return to a life of solitude, but the specters of crimes and his mother continue to haunt him. Uh, very interested to see what you guys do with this. i Psycho switches back and forth and me with Jaws, this is my favorite movie ever made. And I, I wish better sequels were made to it because I think he could have done something interesting. So I'm curious to see what you did. So sell me on Psycho 2.
3: All right, so um, I'll just get right to it. My rule is the I used the uh, nominees of the 87th Academy Awards. Uh, my director is going to be Bennett Miller, who did Foxcatcher. Um, and I picked a writer for this as well, which is going to be Dan Gilroy, who did Nightcrawler, and um, nominated for that. Both of these movies focused on kind of creepy characters and had very good central performances, uh, which is what I kind of want to get out of this. My Norman Bates is going to be played by Edward Norton, uh, who Joe cast in his movie. Um, my Dr. Adam Claiborne, who is going to be the psychologist or psychiatrist, is going to be played by Michael Keaton. Uh, uh, my Lila Loomis is going to be played by Rosamund Pike. Emma Spool, who's going to own a diner that he works in, is going to be played by Laura Dern. And my Mary in the movie, a waitress, is going to be played by Emma Stone. So this movie and book is kind of interesting because they have nothing to do with each other. Um, the, they, I think it was like they were coming out around the same time uh, the book came out first, the movie came out, the, the script was being written at the same time. Very different pitches other than the fact that uh, they both took place like 20 years later. So what i'm doing is kind of i'm comboing the movie and book storylines a little bit to kind of bring the best of both of them so you're not doing a straight remake so it's been 20 years since norman bates was locked up in the mental asylum psychiatrist dr adam claiborne has been working non-stop with norman um the day before norman's uh trial to be set free a man is found hanged in one of his rooms but no one can really prove who it, who it was and it's considered a suicide Norman is set free this, the next day. Mary Crane's sister, Lila, protests Norman's release, but her plea is dismissed. Norman takes up residence in his old house behind the Bates Motel, um, against recommendation from uh, his psychiatrist. He continues to have sessions with Dr. Claiborne throughout the movie, um, and reports to a prearranged job run, run at a diner run by Emma Spool. Uh, Mary, a waitress at the diner who Norman befriends, is kicked out of her apartment by her boyfriend, and Norman offers to For her to stay with him until she's able to find a new place mysterious deaths and killings start happening um, including a couple that had broken into the motel uh, a manager at the hotel or the motel uh, and a local boy who was out late you kind of get these throughout the movie um, as random killings and people popping up Uh, norman is convinced that he has started killing again and wants to turn himself in but mary stops him uh, believing there's no way he could be doing it without her noticing that he's a good and that he has a good heart for taking her in Mary does some investigating and believes that Lila is the one behind the killings and wanting to send Norman back to prison. Norman starts helping with the investigation and they confront Lila where she freaks out from seeing Norman and denies it. One day Norman goes to the basement of his house and he horrifyingly finds the corpse of his mother clearly exhumed from the grave. This drives Norman into a panic attack and he sprints upstairs only to see someone in woman's clothing and a knife outside near the house. He goes outside to confront the person. Lila, he yells. The figure turns around and it's and it's his psychiatrist, Dr. Adam Claiborne, who was behind the killings. He had planned to become famous for uh, for curing Norman and that uh, failed when he did not get any recognition and the, all the attention went back to Norman for being set free. He also became kind of, he became insane and driven mad by working with Norman for that long. So he wants to send Norman back to prison because he, it kinda, you kind of get a explanation that he made Norman's. Norman had strangled the prisoner earlier and the doctor made it look like a suicide to get him set free so knowing that he's not f- fully cured he wants to send him back to prison this leads to a fight where Norman takes control of the knife eventually stabbing Claiborne to death the camera cuts and then Norman stands up wearing the woman's clothing Dr. Claiborne had on Having it, uh, grabbing the knife and entering the house on a one shot he slowly walks through the house with, into the bathroom where Mary is showering he raises the knife, opens the curtain, cuts to black
0: All right. I really
1: like that. Um, I have a couple of questions. So, Joe, uh, what do you got for me?
0: Well, it's going to be interesting because uh, uh, we definitely used the same rule on the last one. So, my director is David Lynch. Uh, and so I made this a David Lynch movie. That's my rule. For Norman Bates, I cast Nicholas Holt from The Favorite, Mad Max Fairy Road, and Warm Bodies. And then a character in my movie, Sam uh i cast uh, kyle mclaughlin who's a famous or, or you know typical david lynch actor so it's 1965 five years after the events of psycho norman bates is in the maximum security wing of a psychiatric hospital with his roommate sam sam is a violent middle-aged man for the first few minutes of the movie everything is fairly normal and not like david lynch's usual work it's mostly norman and sam talking to each other Then a guard unlocks the cell door and comes in and tells Norman that because of his good behavior, he is moving to the minimum security side and will finally be getting a roommate. For the first time, we see the room only has one bed. Through conversation, it is revealed that Sam isn't real and is actually Norman's abusive father and the first person Norman killed. I don't know what that was, but the only constant constant narrative throughout the movie is Norman planning his escape. We see Norman talking with people, but we never knew, know who is real or fake. There are scenes of Norman walking outside, but it's never clear if these are daydreams or memories. Eventually, Norman causes a fire, puts on a guard's uniform, and strolls out of the facility with the fire trucks. However, we are not sure if this is real either. It's the first prison break movie where you don't want to see the person succeed, and you're not even sure if they truly have. It's basically One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest meets Bronson, directed by David Lynch. And that's my pitch.
1: Okay. Interesting. Um, Here's my question for both of you before I get to Tristan on this. Um, Will your movies be because both of yours seem to be while Joe's is like while Bates is in prison and Bobby's is 20 years after he's released. Joe, you start, but what year is your film taking place? Is it going to be 60s-ish? Yeah, yeah like I said 1965. Yeah. 1965 and Bobby is yours gonna be 1980 yeah. uh, 20 years after the original I, yeah minus 20 it's set as if it was 20
3: years after that happened so okay so years. neither
1: of you are doing like the modern take like Bates motel the show did
0: no
1: you're doing yeah, right. 20 years like or direct, like uh, basically more of a direct sequel to the original all right okay um Tristan you got any questions for? Him?
2: Yeah, I have a couple of questions. I want to start with Bobby. Uh, one of the parts of the uh, the original sequel that is kind of interesting is that Norman continues to have hallucinations of his mother kind of throughout the movie. Uh, do you have any hallucinations at all throughout yours? I know he's back in the old hotel, he's back in the old town. Is there yeah. any kind of hallucinations of people of the past?
3: He does get hallucinations, and it's because the, the whole movie, kind of the, the mystery, you're supposed to not know exactly is it Norman? Is it Lila or is it someone else? Kind of deal, Um, and it points you in a lot of those directions. So Norman, you are you you kind of are suspicious of him because of the suicide in the beginning, thinking that's probably him, Um, or at least like he could be. So when he has these kind of flashes and sees his mother, it kind of again to the audience, it's like he's still not there. Like you know something something's wrong. So he definitely gets his sees his mother in certain situations, like working at the diner where he's like taking an order and one of them is the mother and then you know it's it kind of snaps him into a weird thing until it goes away type stuff kind of like wandavision where you where she sees like a certain character dead and then turns away and it's someone else like that type of stuff
2: all right and i have a question for joe too uh the original movie the sequel has a lot of like friday the 13th level slasher killings and bobby kind of attributes that in his too by having some slasher kind of killings in the movie news sounds like it doesn't have any of that kind of slasher genre elements not i'm not necessarily bagging on that for you but i want to hear your rationale for changing the genre and not making this a slasher movie i mean one of
0: the main reasons is when that came out the slasher genre was big and i feel like that's kind of not what horror movies are right now that's not what the type of horror movies that are being made and i was, and i just felt like a more psychological like getting in the mind of this you know one of the most famous fictional killers of all time you know famous fictional crazy people of all time and so i just more went that route because so i feel like that's almost not that like david lynch does oh like this is the popular i'm gonna do that but i just felt that both things fit together well and i'm not saying he's like not murdering anybody in this movie but i wouldn't describe my movie as a slasher either
2: yeah i like both of those answers i'm just excited to hear them figured out i'm i'm it's a great, both of you pictures are great. I think we're running we're towards the end, but it's one of the better movies of the night for me.
1: Yeah, it is. Um, but we are running a little long, so we're going to go five minutes on this one. Uh, so, it, I'm, but I'm going to do till 9 10, then I'm going to cut it short. So, fight for your movies and defend why yours is better. So, Joe, I, I think,
3: like, a psychological take, I think, is a pretty, like, it's a, it's a pretty okay way to go, but um david lynch with this for a movie like psycho which has kind of become a classic and a name people know and the shower scene being so famous you kind of want at least some elements of slasher um and not complete surrealism yeah, but which you, you just you does. took
0: david lynch and, and did wizard of oz i feel like psycho and david lynch are a hell of a lot yeah. closer than wizard of oz and david lynch
3: right but i mean not not necessarily to me because so, but basically, what I want to say is, mine has a lot of elements of yours, as far as not knowing quite if he is doing this or not—not not whether it's real, but whether he's doing what's happening or not. And I think it does it in a more entertaining way throughout the movie for for most audiences, where you are getting killings in the middle, you're getting an investigation, um, you're getting interactions with some good, good, really good actors and characters, um, with him and Emma Stone, uh, you get. Um, Laura Dern is always great um, and with yours it's, it it's going to be it's a David Lynch movie, it's surreal, you don't know what's happening, it has a very limited audience um, I, and I don't know if that is where you necessarily should go with Psycho personally, like to me your movie works and it's just fine but mine would be a movie that I would rather see Noran Bates be doing rather than something that could be in his imagination um, of him just trying to escape prison, I'd rather see something that ties back to the original, see the hotel You know see kind of the classic things that make psycho psycho uh, which yours i think is missing other than having norman base in the movie
0: i just feel like partially it's like the reverse arguments that we had for wizard of oz of like where you did more of like the going back to the original and doing what's in the original and i did more of like all the darker and more different kind of interesting take I just feel like yours is a lot of going back and has a lot of member berries and, hey, remember the hotel, hey, remember this, hey, remember that, where mine's just like, hey, let's follow this character, the one character, even people that maybe aren't that familiar with Psycho remember of Norman Bates, and they got a great actor and Nicholas Holt to portray that, and David Lynch, I feel like, is a great person to show, like, the inside the mind of a crazy person that probably doesn't even know what's going on because he's so crazy and deranged and feels... Like, he's his own mother and all of that.
3: Yeah, but the other part of mine, personally, my directing and and writing choices, where you, they both had movies come out that have really strong central performances. Like, Channing Tatum gave an Oscar-worthy performance, at least nomination-worthy performance, in Foxcatcher, and he's a good actor, and he's getting better, but that was like... I had never seen him do anything quite like that. Um, So... Using that direction and the writing that would be with something like Nightcrawler, to go into it, to me like, that gave Jake Hill- Gyllenhaal that deep and great performance. I think that would give Norman a lot, a lot to work with. You get a lot, like you would still have the deep kind of uh, themes and meanings that and stuff that yours might be trying to go for with the surrealism—is it real? But in a way that's a little bit more consumable, um, and but also still a good horror movie um, and follow-up to Psycho.
0: And I just feel like with mine, like, it'd be more just, I feel like yours essentially with, like, the tone and everything is just too much of the same, where mine is like, hey, let's do something different and interesting with this take. If Like, we've seen there was a bunch of Psycho sequels and none of them were that great. Like, yours might be good, might be bad, who knows, but it just feels like, hey, let's take these two things, this book that people didn't care about and this movie that wasn't good. And mash them together. And I said, let's just do a completely different new direction, something people haven't seen before.
3: But mine still turned it into a very different story, different ending where you're not, you don't really know exactly what's coming. You also, by the way, Michael Keaton interacting with him, with uh, Edward Norton and Michael Keaton throughout the movie, I think would. I think, my, I, basically, it comes down to this. I think they're both interesting takes. Like, I, I think your movie's interesting and a take on it. But mine would be personally more watchable for me and for I think a lot of people but still throw in a lot of the themes that you're going for um without trying to make it complete surrealism, surrealism and like like complete David Lynch style um with this character and I, I just would rather see a mystery a thriller with some thr- some slasher elements in there uh and with a lot of great actors with that would get great give great central performances because of the um my director and
0: writing choice yeah, I think I just think my movie could lead to like some really interesting good discussions and I think those lead to the best movies where people are talking about. Like, as your movie once you get to the end everything's kind of explained and you kind of understand what's going on. Where with my movie people could be talking for decades of like, Oh, was this person real? Was this person someone else? Maybe was this you know uh, did this conversation lead to that conversation? Did Was he the one that murdered this person? Or someone else could be like, oh, this background character was the person that murdered them. I just feel like it'd be... The
3: problem is with yours, though, you're, you're already following someone who's known to be insane. So the fact of whether he did it or not, like, everyone's just probably going to figure he... But he's, he's also in the middle crazy. of a psychiatric
0: like, hospital, so it's not... So it's like he's still surrounded by all types of crazy people. Yeah, but
3: I feel like your movie makes more sense if this was not Psycho... And he was someone who started out, maybe you don't know if he's crazy or not, and becomes it throughout the movie rather than someone who you are yeah. already know is insane from psycho and has a split personality um, who like it's initiated. That's the starting point. Yeah. you know that.
0: But so my movie it, it starts makes with him little less interesting. But my movie starts with him, and the you know the psychiatric hospital and the guard comes in and tells him, like, hey, you're on good behavior, everything's copacetic. You're moving to the minimum security wing, so you start to think, Oh, is he like better now? Is he normal a normal human being and then you quickly Which find mine out that's does not too,
3: but in but in mine plays into the fact that the audience is still gonna think it's him the whole time because you know that he's crazy. So you're playing into that and making people think he is doing this again. Where, where yours is like no one's gonna expect, oh, he's just completely cured. Like, I don't think you can quite do that.
1: Yeah, I th- I I think um I have my decision, but overall, this was Tristan's choice, so he is the main judge. So, Um, I've heard everything I need to hear. Tristan, have you heard what you need to hear?
2: I've heard what I need to hear. It's definitely a hard one for me to make, but I want to hear your thoughts before I make any final call on it, but I've heard what i got to hear from them.
1: So, like I said before, Psycho is a top one or two movie for me ever made. It was the first of the slasher genre. So I do tend to lean towards Bobby's film, which is more of a return to form of uh, slasher films. It reminded me a lot of um, the newest Halloween, which was probably the best slasher movie that's come out in a long time. Um, and I, and I really enjoyed it, but Bobby's is different in a way because um, Bennett Miller, who did Fox Catcher, also did Capote. And he also did Moneyball which are all three very different movies, but they're all character pieces. And if I'm going to see a sequel to Psycho, I want it to feel more like a character piece than a David Lynch film, um, where his is more about the, did this happen, did this not happen, is the ambiguity. and, And Psycho isn't really about that. It has a very clear ending of what happened, and it ends with Norman having the voiceover of his mother saying oh well they're gonna you know believe that i'm i'm innocent i wouldn't even harm a fly i think bobby's does a better job selling the character of norman 20 years later of maybe he's changed maybe he's just pretending but i believe that norman bates in 20 years would show that he is innocent or changed because that is ultimately the you know last little monologue we kind of get of the character and i like bobby's uh direction of it i like the misdirections that it has in it and i love the ending i love the the one shot following norman into the house into the shower um i'd be sold completely on that and then it cuts to black before he actually kills the person but he is dressed like his mother um bobby's movie sounds like the one for me for sure um, Joey had some decent elements but it doesn't actually sound like any connection to Psycho so personally I'd be pretty strongly favoring Bobby for this point
2: yeah it was a hard one for me because you guys both went for different directions with it and both I think went really far into it like I think comparatively to Bobby's Lynch uh, pitch I think Joey's a little bit better I think he uses his cast better I think he uses the trippy ambiguity of Lynch a lot better but I kind of agree with Bobby and Johnny and that I don't think that necessarily fits in Psycho. I think that level of ambiguity isn't something that was in the original Psycho. Like, there's the one twist. You're kind of seeing the mother, but it's not really her. and But they're not necessarily lying to you, you know. And I think if Joe wants his movie to be insecure, is he not? They don't have the very first scene of the movie be him seeing somebody who's not there and talking to somebody who's not there. So I feel like he go into the whole entire movie already knowing that this guy is crazy this guy is not seeing what's real so i think if you started out without giving it away and you're spending the movie a little bit more ambiguous of it is he cured or is he not i'd be more into joe's but i think the fact that you give it away in the opening scene that this guy is crazy you're not necessarily going to have me on edge you know i'm not going to be wondering is this guy crazy or is he not crazy because i already know that he's crazy from the opening scene and maybe if it was a little bit further in the future like bobby's is what 20 years later similar to the first one so i think you have more of a chance for that character to grow and change but i think just five years later and he's he's still seeing people that aren't there from scene one i'm not buying into the ambiguity of that so for me i went with bobby's i think paying back to the slasher genre is a little bit of a plus i think that joe got lynched down well but i just don't know if this is the right move for him and i think bobby I would get shivers seeing the, ho- the hotel again, seeing the house again. It might be memory berries, but I think it works this many years later compared to the first one. So I'm, I'm going with Bobby on this. This feels more in, in character with the original movie, the original sequel, and just something a bit more watchable than a Lynch-cycle movie might be.
1: All right. So, guys, that ties it up. Yeah. Going into Game 7, which Joe and Bobby are both very familiar with, so, we got our, our last movie, and just yeah, going into it, this was the movie that Tristan and I chose together, so we will be, interesting how this worked out, this is the movie Tristan and I will both be uh, deciding on together. Okay,
3: well, I'm going to step away really quick and be right back, you can read the, I don't know if there's any comments, or just, uh, you no, hasn't the be. description of the movie. Okay, I'll be back in just a second.
1: All right, so we are ending on The Man Who Knew Too Little. Joe, did you say, sorry, did you say, uh, are you going first or is Bobby?
0: Uh, Bobby can go first.
1: All right, so The Man Who Knew Too Little um, is obviously a play on The Man Who Knew Too Much, which uh, Tristan and I both had a pitch movies for last week. This uh, stars uh, the greatest uh, person to ever be alive, uh, Bill Murray. Um, and also has Alfred Molina and Peter Gallagher, Joanne Wally. Um, and this is the IMDb description uh, so Wallace Ritchie is mistaken for a spy and must stop a plot to assassinate international leaders at a banquet um, this is a very fun movie, it's a good take on the original one, it's kind of a flip the script of instead of people that are kind of put into a role because of kidnapping it's a character that they believe to be someone he's not and then he kind of figures T needs to take care of business even though um he doesn't really have anything to do with it so i like the uh general plotline. line i think this is actually right for a reboot and i think he would do something uh pretty interesting with it so i'm interested to see what you guys do bobby joe said that you are going first so i want to see uh what your pitch is for the man who knew too well
3: all right well if you're paying attention uh like joe said we are using the same rule um so that'll be very interesting to see how our pitches differ. Uh, but I am making this a Charlie Chaplin movie, and so is Joe. Um, so that's kind of the only person that I put in it, because it's a Chaplin movie, and you can fill, fill the rest of them with whoever you'd want. But I'm going to recontextualize it to where um, Charlie Chaplin's character is visiting his brother in Europe, um, and it is basically, instead of a a spy like kind of situation with that it's going to deal with nazis and they are actually trying to uh assassinate an important person there and that is the thing that charlie chaplin gets caught up caught up in and that's kind of something that charlie chaplin kind of dealt with in a lot of his movies um in some of his movies at least so i'm going to have it's basically i think this is right for charlie chaplin's physical comedy um and you can have a lot of scenes of him like dodging bullets because he is uh you know He thinks it's an improv theater, and he is, like, overconfident. You get the overconfident Charlie Chaplin with a lot of physical kind of, you know, um, pratfalls, comedies type of stuff that he's very good at. Um, And also tell a story about, you know, war at the time and and trying to make fun of the Nazis, which is something that was done very well and that he did very well. Um, And kind of show them as kind of the, like, goofy doofuses that can't take out this guy that thinks they're theater actors. Um, and then at the end, and the people he's interacting with is uh, the U.S. government who's trying to stop it from happening because the important person, person is from America. Um, so at the end, they asked him to, to join them as an undercover soldier. And they, like, he basically thinks you know, that's what they're calling the actors, who he agrees, kind of similar to the first one. But I'm, I'm kind of just, it's Charlie Chaplin. It, I think Joe and I picked a really good rule for this where the physical comedy works really well like Bill Murray in the first one climbing the building and being shot at like type of stuff I think Charlie Chaplin could do that type of stuff really well um, and I think that contextualizing it in this way to be more of a war type thing uh, would fit Charlie Chaplin alright
1: interesting Bobby is yours a um, a talkie or is it a it's a silent film it's a silent okay it's a silent film alright Joe give me yeah. your pitch
0: all right, yeah. So I kind of changed uh, mine up a little bit uh, because, like, I was looking into the whole thing of how the story started. Of um, uh, the, there were these basically like the live plays that you could interact with were a big thing in the '80s, and obviously this wasn't really a thing in the like late '30s. So I kind of wanted to change how he got swept up into it a little bit. Uh, but yeah so like I said Charlie Chaplin movie in the days before World War II uh, the little tramp is working as a repairman at a London hotel a strange man comes in the same time the front desk tells the tramp someone needs his help in one of the rooms and gives him the room key the tramp bumps into the man they both drop their keys and they accidentally get switched Uh, they go up the stairs together go to doors next to each other but their keys don't work they look around and switch rooms Uh, the keys work The man in the room that the tramp enters is excited to see him, but he seems confused by his appearance. The tramp is told a bomb is planted in the parliament and he needs to sneak in and disarm it. The tramp, not wanting to do bad at his job, agrees, and uh, during the course of the movie, he works with a beautiful woman played by Paulette Goddard. Uh, We get some great visual gags of the tramp trying to dress fancy to sneak into parliament, uh, sweating, trying to disarm the bomb, and all get back to his job without his boss noticing. Joe, is yours a silent film? Yeah, that's talk. my silent film as well.
1: Yeah. All right. Interesting, because I would have given whoever made this a talk to the point, but you both went a silent film. I think this would have been stronger. Both your pitches, it was more like The Great Dictator. Um, you had some dialogue in there, so I'm interested to see you guys fight it out. I don't really have a question. Tristan, do you have a question on this one?
2: It's so our second time Bobby has used Nazis in a comedy pitch tonight. Are they taken seriously this time, Bobby?
1: I mean
3: yes but you are intentionally making fun of them that is the whole point
1: that's why i wanted to see it more well, like the right dictator in terms of making fun of you know nazis and stuff in terms of dialogue but i do think the chaplain has that ability even a silent film to to do that so i'm interested to see you guys fight it out um i'm going to give you five or six minutes on this i do want to make this a very clear one tristan and i are the both uh both of uh, us are deciding judges on this so Hopefully, one of you sells both of us uh, more than the other. So find it out, Bobby. You start.
3: Yeah, um, like I like you mentioned, and I I, I want to defend first off. I mean the defense. I mean we both didn't make it a, a talkie, but um, I just think the you don't need a big speech or dialogue. Like you, the concept of is easy enough to like. This is why he's in the situation, and it's a very physical story to tell of him. You know, getting caught up in this and all the physical gags, um, and by showing the Nazis as not being able to take out this guy who is, you know, not a soldier, not a spy, not a whatever, kind of gets the point across of what he's trying, what you're trying to do for the movie. Um, and I th- that commentary I think makes more sense than Joe's, which is still more of a spoof on a spy type thing back at that time. I mean, uh, mine still because like movie. mine's,
0: mine still has like the World War Two elements because it's. 1939 uh you know because what I had in my brain and or like in my head it was like the Germans who were planning the bomb and basically you know trying to take England out uh before they were even a threat in the war is kind of what my thought was because there was still the rise of Germany and so I feel like that plot line would fix that ma- or that plot line would fit and you still have Charlie Chaplin going against you know the Germans and the Nazis and you could have Uh, them go against his character and kind of belittle his character and you can show through visuals of the Germans and the Nazis being shown as bad people as you know not good people and I think it'd be a good message because you know Charlie Chaplin wasn't a tall guy so him going against and taking out you know these are like not physically fighting them but you know foiling their plans these big tall imposing guys shows like a good message so there are still those messages in this movie.
3: Okay. Um, I just want to also get into the fact that the, the context of, like, the, the headspace that Charlie Chaplin's character would be in each movie, I think it's funnier to see him be overconfident and cocky going through it rather than being nervous and scared the whole time. Personally, I think that would create a lot of funny, more funny moments, like, visually for me, rather than him, oh, like, it happened you a lot of times it's like, oh, someone's not um he's thrown into a situation and he's not quite you know, he knows what he's getting into, but he's not up for it. So he's nervous. And you that happens a lot. I feel like the one of the more brilliant parts of the first one is the mindset that the main character's in. That's what creates a lot of the comedy and differentiates it from a lot of movies. Um so I wanted to keep that same mindset for my lead character rather than this is a job that you're you're not a spy, but go do the spy job or whatever, war job, um, and him trying to do it, uh, rather than him like, oh, this is just a fun thing, ah, dodge the stuff, and, and be I'd ra- I want to see him be cocky, confident, and have a lot of fun in the movie rather than nervous and trying to like dress up as things. Personally, that's just what I would rather see from it.
0: But I think it could be a more interesting take to have him be kind of this guy that doesn't know the situation he's fully in. It's just he was told, from his perspective by his boss that this guy asked the fa- that works, you know you're new at this hotel and this guy asked a favor of you and so you have to complete it if you want your job and so he thinks that what he was told to do basically by the hotel was disarm this bomb because he's just like some dumb like handyman at this hotel and really the job he's probably asked was like fix a door hinge or something but and I feel like that still kind of gets him in a similar mind space of just trying to be good at his job and doing that
3: yeah but you said he's you know wiping sweat away trying to get the bomb like he's still like he's he is a like lowly you know hotel worker but i feel told, like that's go do this like thing that's way above charlie your chaplin
0: grade. yeah that fits like I, I'd the I'd rather... charlie chaplin movie and that's right what the but thing that's
3: is. the whole thing of that's why i want to see one i want to see charlie chaplin do something a little bit different as far as his physical comedy than he's used to doing um and i think he pulls it off i mean he does my type of comedy in other movies too but yours is like the more typical And I'd rather see him do this way, where he's the like again the cocky type guy. That's just more of a preference, especially in a remake of this particular movie, because that's the whole concept. That's what I think makes it funny. Because I I think there were two ways to go. We we went with the same one. We could also make it a spoof of like Mission Impossible. I feel like you tried to mash a modern like your sounds like a spoof of Mission Impossible, which wouldn't didn't quite exist yet um, at the time, rather than a movie that would fit Charlie Chaplin.
0: I feel like, I mean, spies and stuff were a thing in the early, you know, pre-World War II days. spies have been a thing since war started. like
3: They've been a thing, but, you, like, yeah, just, the, again, I, like, I just think the whole concept of the movie itself of the original, um, it makes more sense to keep that character and keep that comedy because I think that's what makes the first one great. Um, and I think Charlie Chaplin would pull it off really well. But also just don't something feel like Charlie, Charlie Chaplin done
0: a lot. Does like cocky, from. I'm I'm gonna
1: be honest here. I have a very very strong opinion on where I'm going with this one, and I don't think there's gonna be anything else said to sway my opinion. But Tristan, I want to hear from you. What are your thoughts? Are you close on these? Do you need to hear anything more specific from either of them?
2: I don't need to hear more. I'm pretty set on my decision here Uh, if you want me to give a little more detail I can
1: All right. Uh, I think we've probably heard everything we need to say then so Tristan I I have a super strong opinion I'm going to let you do yours first and if we disagree we can maybe have a a conversation to kind of get get a a consensus winner but tell me what your thoughts are and who you think uh, is the winner
2: I like the idea from Bobby's side of changing it up a little bit and giving Chaplin something different to do and playing a character a little bit more uh, confident and cocky than he usually plays in his movies. But I also think that's kind of a dodge. It always feels like something that Charlie Chaplin would have made. It feels right out of that era of his movies. Initially, I was leaning towards Bobby because he directly included Nazis, and I think that was something that Chaplin would do. But once uh, Joe went more into his pitch and said, oh, yeah, they're Germans, they're uh, the bad guys, they're Germans, the bad guys in Nazis." And Whether or not he pulled that out of his ass favor, I think he used uh, the Nazis the same way that Chapman would use them. And I think his sort of less confident, more kind of sweating, nervous kind of guy, I could see the champ kind of having to uh, defuse the bomb, and he's getting so sweaty that it's falling out of the bomb. And, that feels like something, and he gets swapped with the guy in the room next to him, and that confusion of going back and forth, trying to key it out, and trying to figure out how to get in, that feels like something out of a Chaplin movie, so I just think Joe has captured Chaplin very, very well, so I'm going to give the win to Joe here, I think he just gets a vibe with Chaplin a bit more.
1: Yeah, I think, um, my thing with it, yeah, I agree, I think Bobby's original pitch was, was strong with the Nazi stuff, um, But, all in all, Bobby talked about the confidence of Charlie Chaplin, and he feels like this guy that would need to do these things, like he feels like he can do them. But that was never Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin's character was always behind on everything in in, um, modern times. You had him failing over and over he I mean, he's trying to win money the his mother um, and just, just gets humiliated over and over. He's so going, I think Charlie yeah. would, his way to think that is the best one who is behind the way to accomplish his goals. While the whole movie, you feel like, oh man, this dude do just keeps failing over and over. That fits Charlie Chaplin well, fits the tramp character. What well, uh, I was Joe used. Um, so I'm gonna go with, with Joe on this one for for the win. Um, because I just felt like Joe's movie understood the character a little better than uh, than Bobby's did. So that's Joe's.
2: Under there you his, go, Joe.
1: Probably the longest losing streak of anyone on show. Um, the show. Even people who've only been on it once and lost. Um, Joe has the longest losing streak. So, the revenge yeah, tour I, I begins. Think, um, again, Joe, And, and again, the, the title of the movie is The Man Who Knew Too Little. So I think a nervous character who doesn't doesn't exactly know everything he's got into works best for the movie, but for the title so Those are all reasons pointing towards Skip Bob fought his. So I I, I do think Joe ended on a good one, and Joe has probably a wider knowledge than Bobby on the Charlie Chaplin character. Um, And that worked to your advantage on the last pitch, Joe. So congratulations. You finally won after a long, long, long time. How do you you feel?
0: I feel great. Uh, Yeah, there was definitely the strategy of making Bobby go first, especially when I knew we had the same rule. I'm like, okay, our pitch is going to be identical. I'm going to have Bobby go first, and I'm just going to add on anything extra I can do. Everything I said about the Germans, made up. Didn't have any of that written down or planned. I was just like, fuck it. Don't need it. Turned out I needed it, so I At made least... it up. Uh, but yeah, I'm glad my streak's over. So. Yep, and... I don't know. I feel like my internet's cutting out. Yeah. I don't know if you guys are. I was can just going to say feel like it's my internet that yeah, I, can hear, I can hear you. I can hear you. I was just gonna Bobby, say,
1: my, my main question Oh. for Bobby, have you seen a Charlie Chaplin movie? Yeah, what I was act,
3: I I, I personally liked the idea of him not playing the same character. So I was going for, but also, like Joe said, like, we both probably came into it with a very, like, basic pitch. Like, you both uh, thought, I was, for your
1: point, very well, your pitches right. I thought were very even and then by the end of it I was leaning towards Joe a lot more. I was banking on on the
3: original movie being like someone like oh you liked that style of comedy and that's the type of thing because I went first and when he said the nervous thing I'm like I have to at least combat that because that's what Charlie Chaplin does but also I didn't even have the Nazi stuff in there until I knew that we had the same rule. So Uh, once, once once I knew we had the same rule I had to add more details other than I'm making a Charlie Chaplin movie with
1: physical comedy. So well, what I was interested in, what I was what I was baiting for was, you know, both of your movies, because they were silent Chaplin movies, had to have come out in 1939. Yeah. That's when World War II started, and Charlie Chaplin started doing talkies in 1940. Yeah. So you basically both made a movie in the same year. If one of you had been, like, I'm making a movie that's more relevant to World War II that came out in 1941 or 1942... And it's a talkie, I think you probably would have won that point, but you both went the same direction with it, and once you did that, Joe won that point easily by picking a character that Chaplin had been doing up until that point, because he really hadn't done anything until the other than The Tramp, until The Great Dictator, but both of you pitched a movie that had to have come out in 1939, um, and we hadn't seen him do anything different in all of the silent films are, are the Tramp characters, so I think once both of you pigeonholed your movies into the same year and the same, um, role, Joe's fit the character more. So Bobby, if you were yeah. two years later on your movie and you went talkie and you went, we're going, you know, basically building off the great dictator rather than building off the tramp. I think your movie would have been much stronger and it yeah. would have maybe gone your direction. But I think, um, you kind of screwed yourself by making it a silent film. And unfortunately, that came
3: down to... Uh, I think it came down to um, Joe making me go first, and that was a really good strategy because I would have changed up my pitch based on Joe's. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I, was... I would have been like, oh, his is silent, mine's, mine's a talkie. Like, you know, I would have done that instead of going the same. So, no. you know... Yeah, I I was running,
0: as you were talking, spread. I was running through options in my head. I'm like, because I didn't have the thing of, like, he thinks it's... Uh, like fake the whole time so i was trying to run through scenarios of a way i can make it fake and i was you know because i thought i might get screwed over on that if i distanced myself too much from the original and i couldn't come up with anything i like so i and then it was time for me to go so i'm like fuck it i guess i'll just have to read what i wrote because that's the only option i have yeah, at this we point. were in
3: the same spot and it came down <laughs> to who went first we both had to improv
1: <laughs> i like it well
3: guys this was a great
1: episode joe i'm happy for you you um you, uh, you were able to overcome a long deficit of uh, of defeat, so I'm I'm happy you tried to get back in your feet before getting absolutely demolished by next week. So I'm sorry to say that your win streak will not last. But you know, so next week we're we're uh, just to let everybody know uh, to get on board with uh, the Golden Globes nominees just came out recently. We're going to do films based upon. Golden Globes winners to kind of keep uh, relevancy towards the topic. So we're going to reboot those next week. will be, um, I believe, Joe versus myself with Bobby. Is, oh, did and we Tristan already decide that? Judging. We're doing it, yeah. Because I was going to face whoever won this episode, or no? no Tr- I was was, it's me that. versus Tristan. Yeah, Tristan was. Ah, so yep. no, so yeah, I take that back. Bobby and I will be judging while Tristan and Joe face. But the winner of that episode faces me.
3: Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So
1: you have to win two to face. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So uh, basically, so Joe, no matter
0: what happens, is shit. after I face Tristan, I face you. Because if I beat Tristan, then I face you for the championship. If Tristan beats me, then he faces uh, Bobby, which would mean I still face you, anyways. So
1: makes sense. I'm happy about it. Having another week off of uh, me judging and uh, picking the movies will give me a chance to finish my. James Bond rankings which I will find a way to get to everybody which I've been working on for way too long I've watched 19 James Bond movies in the last two weeks which is more than one per day so I uh I hope that gets some attention because I put a lot of fucking work into this shit um hope y'all like James Bond yeah. um
2: uh,
1: um so Tristan my friend, uh, with the broken foot um uh, what are your uh, final thoughts?
2: It was a good a good episode. I think everybody had some really intense, good pitches. I think we got down to the last one, and I think it was a really good argument. It's always disappointing to get to the last pitch and somebody just blows the other person out of the water, and you're like, well, that's the game. But we got to the last couple ones, and it was very close. I thought Psycho, Two was particularly close for me. It wasn't as much for Johnny, I think. But I like when we had two – until the last one, I think all the pitches went in very different directions. So I think it was very easy to argue, very easy to see the two sides. So it was a fun episode for that. My favorite pitch uh, for Joe is probably the Charlie Chaplin one, even though he had so little information. I think off the top of his head he was able to make it into a genuine tramp movie, and I think that's pretty impressive. For Bobby's, I think it was probably Psycho too. I think it is tempting to lean into the Lynch kind of weirdness and go for Tristan the easy win with the Lynch pick, but... I think your faithfulness to the genre of the original, faithfulness to the kind of setting and the tone, and the slasher elements, I think really won me over. It feels like something I had a really good time watching, so that was my pick for Bobby's favorite. And good for Joe, I guess you won. Congratulations! But uh, enjoy it while you can, because next week, uh, broken foot or not, I'm gonna be back in full gear. Yo, know, I'm not wearing my pet, my T-shirt. You're, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be prepped. I'm suited up. I'm coming to win, and. Like I've said before, I should have won every episode I've ever been on. I should be on a complete win streak right now. So I'm here to take down the establishment, which includes Joe. Joe's the co-founder. Joe's going down, too. I'm taking on everybody, one by one by one, starting with Joe next week. All right.
0: Well, I'm bringing that yeah. Motor right, City like Dan that. Campbell mentality. You know, you can knock me down. I'm going to get back up. And so I got knocked down, knocked Joe. down, and knocked down. And now I'm back up, and I'm staying up. So you want some? Knocked down come for get almost some.
1: a year. Um, yeah. Joe, what um, what's your, what was your favorite pitch of, of Bobby's or hardest to fight against?
0: Um, the hardest to fight against? I mean, probably the man who knew too little just because they were identical pitches almost. And Same. so I just had to make up anything I could to put myself over the top. And I feel like that's been my struggle. It seems like normally on this show, I either win-handedly or barely lose. There's very few times I feel like, oh, someone else just had a way better pitch than me. And my problem has always been winning those close pitches. And I feel like today was the first time I finally won one of those close pitches. And it came in right at the right time, so I'm happy.
1: Nice. Yeah, Joe, Joe's losing streak has is kind of, um, uh, it, it's not exactly telling of how good his pitches are because he sure. has lost a lot of close matches in that time. But Bobby, what was your favorite pitch of Joe's or hardest to fight against? I mean, like Joe said, hardest to fight
3: against is the one that we had the same pitch and had to improv. I mean, mm-hmm. for sure. that was I mean, that was the toughest one. But as far as pitches, I really liked. I actually did – I loved my Psycho 2 pitch, but I also really liked Joe's, um, even though I had to bash the David Lynch thing. But um, I'd actually say I really liked his bridge too far um, yeah. with Mangold. I think yeah. that – I mean, he knows my – you know, what I like, and he played mm-hmm. right into it. Um, and I had to fight a movie that I would have watched for sure.
1: Yeah, I think, I think for me, um, Joe's best pitch was A Bridge Too Far. Bobby's best pitch was Psycho 2. Um, but the best fight was the last one because while Joe tried to pander to me with uh, Kim Ji-Woon film um, doing uh, the Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, I think that hurts you when you pick a director maybe you're not as familiar with. And Joe won that last fight because... Joe has a fundamental understanding of Charlie Chaplin yeah. and that is what really won. And my advice as someone who has only lost one episode ever of the show is pick people that you are passionate about because it's easier to fight for them when you have an understanding of their filmmaking. Harder, when you try weird. Exactly, <laughs> when when you try to go towards um you know i think the judges might like this one but i don't really know the filmmaker as well it's tough to fight because mm-hmm. you can get knocked down quickly um and and i think people fall into that trap and and i really loved the debate on the chaplin movie because i think joe showed his um knowledge of chaplin films and that's what really won you um the episode so that's what i appreciated
0: I will say, though, I didn't and, think, um, I didn't go that route to pander to Johnny. I went that route because I'm like, okay, this movie's been made three times now, including a TV movie. How can I make it different? And my first thought was I can make it a foreign film. And so that's why I went that route. It yeah. wasn't necessarily to pander mm-hmm. to Johnny.
1: I understand that. I, I just, watching, like, the fight between that and the fight between the last one, you kind of understood the knowledge of... Um, the people you chose for the film, like Joe, would not have won that last fight if he didn't understand the Tramp and he didn't understand Chaplin. And I, I always think, no matter who the judges are, your understanding of the um, characters and the actors and the filmmakers that you choose does help you, for the most part, um, unless it's something super obscure that maybe the the judges don't love. We saw that last week when Tristan beat me in Troll Two. He was very passionate about. Um, the the original film and I and I think that helped him so um, my uh, final thoughts are everyone please follow us on TikTok Instagram Twitter at movie changeup please like and subscribe on our YouTube videos we appreciate all the live comments we got tonight we'd love to get more and more of those as our show goes on um, and thank you for thank you for watching thank you for listening we really 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 have been trying hard to expand this show. And do more and more we can to uh, widen our audience. So we're happy to do that. We want to give you more and more content. And uh, we're happy for our, our faithful listeners, especially Paul. Hashtag who is Paul. Um, and, that, and that being said, thank you, everyone. And have a great night. And thank you for enjoying our episode. Have a fantastic uh, rest of your lives.